燃え上がれガンダムいや、I think that's like 
more or less my feelings on the ending as well. That they, like it's very clear, especially when you know like the production history and you know that they didn't they had to sort of change the ending and the trajectory to the ending. Um, that it like the pacing changes. It's really stuffed. Um, but I think. Like, one, I think, like, Escape is, like, one of the best episodes easily of Gundam. But I also think there's something to the quality of the, like, barreling to the ending and having all that momentum and and them having to convey a lot of stuff about, like, the new types and Lala in particular in a very compressed fashion that forced them to be really creative um, and inventive with how they're, they're trying to convey these very abstract concepts. That's something that Gundam never is as good at. And I think partially because if you have an entire 50 episode show like Zeta Gundam to talk about new type stuff, it's just not as interesting as when you're like, no, we just have to fucking put all the new type into a fucking syringe, and just shoot it into your arm in the last five episodes. Um, and what those episodes do, particularly, specifically, a Cosmic Glow, which is uh, episode 41, which is another one of my personal favorite episodes. I think they are forced to really do some just phenomenal stuff to try to convey what they convey. And I think if they had had, and, and we'll get into more detail of like what the plan was for the original 52 episodes. But if they had had the full 52 episodes, I think the ending would have been worse. I think they would have spent too much time dealing with this stuff. Instead, like just having to get it all done uh, in the five episodes, I think is amazing. And I love I love the last four episodes in particular. I think the Shalia Bull one is the one that's the most rough to me. Um, but the last four, I just adore. Absolutely. And... and- you might have heard some like hesitation in my voice as I was trying to explain my reaction to the last five because yes, I it is rushed. There are some pieces that I think could have worked better, but I do tend to agree with what you're saying. And and of course, this is from you've seen this show three times. Yeah, I have seen this once, and I'm still I'm still digesting those last five. There's so much that happens. I loved everything with the new type stuff, and in fact, again, if you had told me on paper. That this is where we were heading. Like after maybe the first ten episodes, Sean, if you said we're going to find out Amuro is fucking psychic and that's how he has superpowers, mm-hmm. I would have said, "Fuck this! Sh- that's fucking stupid. That just like that betrays the whole arc and blah blah blah." Because it's pretty easy to imagine a version of Gundam where it feels like that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And it doesn't, I think, because and and whether it is because they had to kind of condense it and be so creative with it, or just their their overall artistic instincts here, whatever it was. The way it is presented in these five episodes is so weird and avant-garde and dynamic and sensual above all else. It is so sensory that I feel like it, it works 100% for me. And I love none of that I have questions. I loved all of that. I think like the specific character of Lala, I wish there had been some things that had just been brought to the fore a little bit if we'd had a little more time with her. But overall, again, it is hard to complain when, as you say, like, and I also think that overall sweep of, like, as fast as it is, those five episodes flew by when I was watching these, Sean. Mm -hmm. I had never, the most I think I'd done in one sitting of Gundam was three, and this was just, I I got to the end of episode four and I didn't even realize I'd watched four of them. Like, it was a two and a half hour watch session, roughly, and it barely felt like any time had passed. It really is just, you are right in the maw of the, the closing you know, act of this giant war and feeling like it is all just barreling towards that conclusion. They do it in a way that feels very exciting, not just like they're they're skipping pieces. Um, so if there's little imperfections here or there, I will take those little imperfections because this is such a unique and dynamic 
closing five episode stretch and i agree sean like if they had had 13 episodes to do these store this story some things probably would be better in little ways here and there but i think the overall effect would be less memorable and dynamic and interesting and that's kind of the story of mobile suit gundam overall is that it was a show made with a lot of different restrictions and and things that if tomino had just had his way on everything it would have been a very different show might not have been as as interesting and memorable a show yeah i think it's something that we talk about this a lot uh is that sense of so much of what makes great art is the limitations put upon the people making it so it's you know it's that kind of thing of when you you talk about it we talk about it a lot in relation to like digital effects and one of like the consequences of digital effects if they're done poorly is people just being able to like filmmakers being able to kind of shoot whatever and say oh we'll just put in the effects later and not have to think about it too much versus if you have to get everything done in a practical sense and you have to you know spend all that time and effort and like really focus in on it that often would make those kinds of sequences practical effects sequences in movies much better and i think the concept is true for gundam because we do know there there was released like what their original sort of plan was for the full 52 um, and I think we'll I'll I'll detail some of that after we talk about these episodes. But for me personally, I'm 100% confident that the ending we got is better than what we would have got if we had gotten the full 52. That's wild because that does not even saying that that this sometimes does happen doesn't always happen. Oftentimes, when mm-hmm. you cut your story off at the legs, like in terms of the time you have, it's just bad. Uh, as we learned this summer with uh, HBO's Game of Thrones. So like, yes. which was a self-imposed. Let's do way too few episodes. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So there is a ton to dive through here. It is so good. Where do you want to begin, Sean? Um, let's let's start with episode thirty-nine, the new type, Shalia Bull, because I feel like that episode stands on its own fairly well, and it's it's like that episode is the episode that is the like transition from the original 52 episode plan to the new 43 episode ending. So that is the one that like, like half of that episode is more or less what they had originally planned it to be. And then half of it kind of isn't um, to kind of push forward what they would like, what the new plan was for the episode. And I feel like you can, you can tell um, that I think the Shalia Bull episode is one of those episodes that clearly does not have like the time on the animation um, like there's a lot of like very stiff animation or like characters looking off model um, and there's like it's a little bit rough in terms of like the plotting feels of, like the timeline of that episode is weird in that it like will show something and then it like cuts like and then three hours earlier this was happening over in Abawaku and there's like a little bit of them having to kind of move pieces around um, and so I think that episode to me is a little bit rough in that regard. But there's a lot of cool world building that happens uh, in in that that talking about new types and Zeon and Shalia Bull, who's a weird mustache man from fucking Jupiter. And any time in any time in Gundam when someone is from Jupiter, there's like weird shit goes on. I don't know what's happening in Jupiter in the Gundam universe because you never go there. But when someone from Jupiter comes in, you're like, the shit at Jupiter must be fucked up because all the people from Jupiter are kind of weird. Yeah, I mean this episode does have some rough spots. And I'll get to those in a second, but it has our first big 2001 sequence, right? Yes. So it's got our first big 2001 sequence. Shalia Bull is a great name. He's got mm-hmm. an awesome mustache. And he has the mobile suit with the best name, which is the Brow Bow, which I assume is the mobile suit that they would have put Frau Bow in if she ever became a pilot. 
Yes, we actually, we did see the Brow Bro very briefly in the last section of episodes where on their way to side six, uh, the white base kind of encounters it when it was in its testing phase. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's seen very briefly. But, but the yes, this... Brow Bro is such a fucking great name for a Gundam. Doesn't do yes. much in this episode. I do think like the big thing is, I think if, if any character suffers in these last five from like not having the time, it's Chalia Bull. Because I, I think... If if you were fully reconfiguring whatever their plan was down to five episodes, I would just cut Shalia Bull because I'm not sure of the point he serves if he is introduced and dispatched within about half an episode. Like, you get a little bit of the contrast of that he's not ready and that you have people who are starting to show these abilities, but it's such a it's such a gestational story that doesn't get to like come fully into itself. Like, you know, and, and it, it opens up some questions that I don't know if the show fully is able to sort of answer in this stretch about, like, how much do the different organizations know about new types? The Xeons start assuming that the Federation actively has and is, like, grooming new types, but we never see that on the Federation side. We see that, like, is this the one also where Char is outed by Kaecilia? And Kaecilia um, knows I think so, maybe. It's, it's either that or the next one. Yeah, because... So there's just there's a lot of stuff going on here that like ultimately Shalia Bull is just there as kind of a distraction for one episode so that Shar can go full bore with Lala, and I do think that's where the rough half the episode is. But there's a lot of really good stuff in it still. So yeah, and and like one thing I love that the Brow Bro introduces and then you see it like a more advanced version with Lala's Elmith is the bits, um, which are things that then like after this Gundam just changes the name to Funnels. I never understood why, because I kind of like bit more, because I think it's a cool way to refer to it. But it's the, like, concept of you have your, like, major, like, your main mobile suit or mobile armor. And then you have all these, like, little gun things that kind of shoot off that you have a system that allows new types to kind of control it telepathically. And so that's how, um, that's why, like, Amuro is the only person who's able to fight the Brow Bro or the Elmeth is because there's all these, like, r- like laser guns kind of shooting out from odd angles and nobody understands what's happening. And the only way to stop it is to have some sort of sense of where they're going to be and anticipate where they're going to be. And I think that's such a cool concept for, like, the next level mobile suit combat is... We're into some, like, serious psychic shit. There are these, like, laser things that are just shooting around and that normal people, if you are not able to react to those things, you're just going to get completely devastated. And I think that that's such a cool, like, it's such a cool concept for, like, space combat because it uses the kind of, like, full 3D movement in these fights really well. And, And I like the Brow Bros in particular because they're still, like, kind of attached by, like, a wire to the main mobile suit. So all of like the mobile suits in this section of the show, I think have really cool designs and really cool ideas on how they kind of change up combat in this last, last stretch of episodes. Absolutely. And I really like the start of this episode where it really feels like a clean break. Like this is the beginning of the end of Gundam is, is they are at Solomon, which the Federation has made kind of its new base of operations for the attack on Abawaku. <laughs> and they are suddenly under attack and they don't know where it's coming from. And kind of we go further and further out into space and find that it's Lala commanding the Elmeth. And that is such a good like kind of opening salvo and like initial mystery for this set of episodes. And like bringing the new types into the fold fully. I really like that as a plot point. Like overall, I like everything this episode does. Just some of it doesn't feel like it's done in full. Which is, the and this is the clearest of the five where you feel that. Yes. 
But like in going with like Lala sort of taking out the Federation ships from like a super distance, which again is another fun thing of the like world building of Gundam that, you know, because of the the way that Minovsky particles work, the, you can't do that with conventional weaponry. So you need a new type to be able to do that kind of like super long distance warfare. But then I love the Lala song that plays like this very just sort of like kind of unsettling mystic song that plays that everybody who's like the target of her attack can hear. And so every time they cut to like some comms dude, some poor comms dude in a Federation uh, ship, he's just like, it's that la la sound again. What the hell is going on? I love every time they do that. It like becomes like a like, like soft horror kind of vibe uh, of just like the nobles of space in new types and he's just like this normal dude whose ship is about to get blown up and all he hears is some like faint la la music in the distance it's very creepy and very good and then of course how it connects to Amro is excellent as well so yeah. yeah a lot of a lot of stuff going on here yeah there's and then this is also where you introduce the plot point of that we we have gotten hints of a little bit but this is where they, they sort of first fully submit the idea that Amuro is faster than the Gundam. And so yes. this is where they st- they first kind of put that down of that, like, the Gundam is just not quite able to keep up with Amuro's inputs. And so he almost gets destroyed by the Brow Bro, but just because the Gundam cannot turn its arm fast enough to keep up with what he's trying to do, which is such an awesome culmination of his character arc to go from the Gundam is so powerful and Amuro is barely even able to control it to Amuro is such an effective pilot at this point that the Gundam as a machine is physically unable to keep up with how good Amuro is. And that's such a great like overall like, you know, arc from like beginning to end that I love that detail of where they kind of pin it at the end with Amuro needs, like the Gundam needs to get upgraded for the, the joints to be able to move fast enough for Amuro's inputs to kind of work. I love that too. I love that, and I I like the episode starts with this little kind of red herring where Amuro's like, you know, I think the Gundam has a heating problem. It's something he's like talking to the mechanics, and you kind of think nothing of it that this is just like daily wear and tear. And then as the episode goes along, he's like, something's up with this. It's not moving right, and you realize, like we the audience realize before Amuro does, it's not the Gundam Amuro. It's it's you. You're too fast for it. I really like that, and just. There is no better sign of how well Gundam understands its own themes and thematic implications than that in the last five episodes we go from Amuro is too fast for the Gundam to a final episode where their mobile suits do not play into the final battle. And it is mm-hmm. just Char and Amuro throwing down mano a mano, which we'll get to. But like, it literally moves fully beyond the realm of, of you know, mechanation and automation at a certain point. Which a lot of, which is what a lot of these five episodes are. In fact, Sean, I just want to talk about that for a little bit because this is the first episode with our full two thousand one scene, where Amuro yep. just gets. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about you know in Stanley Kubrick's two thousand one, when Bowman gets monolith. I don't even know what to say, but there's a good twenty minute sequence where he looks into the monolith and is transported through this like color tunnel. And I mean, they directly quoted in Gundam with Amuro having the lights on his helmet from everything he's seeing, which is right yeah. out of 2001. Um, but they also like, uh, Gundam does a little more in terms of just all the weird sound work and like just fully visual abstraction and all this stuff. And that continues throughout these final five episodes. And 
Not something I would have expected to see in Gundam when we started watching it, Sean. Uh, not something I assume most people would have expected to see. I fucking love it because it's awesome and it is wild. And I also think it is, again, thematically very interesting for this show about like humans and hard science and mechanation to ultimately go to this realm of like abstraction and telekinesis and a realm beyond current human understanding. I love it, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it because it's a huge part of the tapestry of these final five. Yeah, and especially, you know, episodes 40 and 41, which are like the Lala episodes, the Lala duology or whatever. It's, yes. You know, that, like those two episodes that do, like, by far the most kind of trippy 2001 um, abstract imagery. I love it to death. Like, once I got th- on my first watching, when I got to this part of the show, I was like, Oh my god, this is amazing. Like, it was like, this show is made for me, um, and for you, because I know you love this oh, stuff. Yeah. You know, like, we did a full, you know, we did fucking Twin Peaks The Return as, like, and did podcasts for every single episode. Obviously, we love this shit. Um, David Lynch think, has seen Gundam, right? There's just no way he hasn't seen Gundam. If he hasn't, he needs to, because it's, yeah. It's, I mean, the sound I, design in those sequences is so Lynchian, and it can't be this is pre-lynch doing that kind of stuff but like it just makes me think like especially in twin peaks the return like maybe he hasn't seen it and they just have uh, probably they just have like you know similar tastes but there is something very lynchian about this sort of like the the weird otherworldly but also industrial like grinding sounds that happen in there i love it yeah and it's it's something that like I, I always wish that Gundam had been able to capture this again. And I think part of it is just like, like this kind of thing feels like it kind of went out of style in the 80s more. And like in the 70s, there's like, especially in anime in the 70s, you have a little bit more of that kind of weird abstract stuff going on. Um, but it's like, but Gundam never, like there are times when it will get a little bit weird and trippy with new type stuff, but it never goes this far with it. And I think it's always been a, like one of the, the mistakes of, post mobile suit gundam gundam is not being able to capture that sensation that this show captures of the of new typeness and like what a new type is being something that is beyond what we can understand and so the only way to try to convey that is to show weird abstract imagery that forces the viewer to try to make like connections into like kind of speak to the viewer on a non like literal level and on a non like kind of language level it's something like very primal and like symbolic and basic that kind of gets underneath all that stuff to the sort of like so-called lizard brain um that's what to me those sequences do and when you don't have that the new type stuff become feels way less special so here it's like there even though we only have a handful of episodes with lala and and even within those handful of episodes there's only a even smaller handful of times that amaro and lala interact even in a like a non-direct way this does so much more to me than any other gundam show has done about like the psychic connection between these two people like driving to something way a, a kind of human connection that's so much deeper than you could ever actually experience in the real world like using that abstract imagery convinces me of that so when Amro like breaks down crying after he kills Lala like that hits me so hard because even if it's this only like two minute sequence within that two minute of abstract sequence of imagery they do so much to convince me that oh these people like these are two people who are psychics they can read each other's thoughts they can communicate on a primal like intellectual level that no other human being ever could they 
these are two people who can actually understand each other, like not in a, an abstract way, but in a direct way. They can understand and feel one another. Um, and losing that has got to be the most tra- traumatic thing possible. And even if there's only a small amount of time spent showing it and discussing it in Mobile Suit Gundam, it does so much for me personally to like convince me of that relationship. I agree, and... I obviously have only seen this Gundam show. That's the premise of our little project here is yeah. that you have seen all of Gundam. I have seen none of Gundam. But I, I just can imagine that if you continue doing, as I know they do, multiple shows set past this, then you just by virtue of no matter how they handle it, you have to explain the new type stuff. Yeah. Mobile Suit Gundam, because it is set at a point in the story where people think this is a possibility but do not know what it is yet and because they only have five episodes to do it all these five episodes have to represent what the new type abilities experience powers whatever you want to call them they have to represent that in a very visual auditory experiential way they don't have time to sit down and have the exposition where like bright goes and asks a professor at a university you know what are the theoretical bases of new type soldiers i want to know for my crew and then they have like a half episode of explaining the science behind it which would demystify it a lot but at a certain point in the story you're gonna have to do that and that's part of the reason why like other things we're pointing to 2001 is a two-hour movie twin peaks is ultimately three seasons and two of them are really good and the one that isn't is partially durational it just goes on too long right yeah um you kind of have to if you're going to stay in this realm of kind of the metaphysical and the weird you have to cut it off at the point where we would get to a realm of starting to fully understand and quantify and categorize it because once you start to categorize it it naturally becomes a little less special it's kind of like to make a comparison that i don't love but i'm going to do just just because I think it's it's close enough to the mark. It's kind of like the way some fans, I think, react to the Star Wars prequels getting deeper into the mechanics of the Force. Yeah. And you and I do not have much of a problem with the midi-chlorian scene. But I do understand the general push against it, which is that you don't want to hear the scientific or biological explanation, even though it must exist. Same as with the new type stuff, like... I assume there is a point in one of the following mobile suit shows where there is a midi-chlorians-esque moment about the new types. More or less, yeah. Yeah, there's got to be something like that. And I can see why that would just feel less special. Whereas in these five, you are in the midst of it. Amuro doesn't really know what new type means. Most of the crew, like Bright and Mirai, have heard of it. They are not steeped in the knowledge of it. They're not even sure if Amuro is one or is just becoming one or what it is. So you really have to do that like in the moment experiential. We are following the development of this thing as the characters who are becoming this thing are becoming it. And that is just really, really exciting and unique and dynamic. Whereas if you went 100 years in the future and this is a normal thing that everyone understands, it would be less interesting. So I think I see what you're saying there. And it is part of why, at least for these five, I really love the idea of new types. I'm also wondering... Like, because I very much want to watch Zeta Gundam now, but it's something Mm -hmm. I'm very curious about is how do you keep this thing feeling special and fresh fresh for another 50 episodes? And I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, and we'll 
when we watch the movies, you'll get like a more of a taste of it because the movies talk about new types way more, and like people know what new types are. That's one of the like more significant changes they make is Bright and Mirai and everyone have multiple conversations about the idea of new types throughout all three of the movies. Um, and here, like in in this show, one of the things I love is. Most of the crew have never even heard the word. Like, they don't even know the idea because it's a weird Xeon thing. So, Sayla knows it. And so, they, while they don't ever, like, show the scene of Sayla telling everyone what a new type is, it's, like, heavily implied that between episodes that has happened. At the very least, like, she definitely told Bright between uh, episode 38 and 39. And then that kind of information gets kind of spread around the ship because there's one scene where where Bright says, like, and, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe Amuro is one of these new types. And then everybody else on the bridge just looks at him and is like, new type? New type? What What are you talking about? And then you have what is one of my favorite little character moments in this stretch of episodes, which is Sayla coming up to Amuro. I think it's in episode uh, 40. I think it's Law's Dilemma. And he's in the cockpit of the Gundam. And he's like, I don't know, like, you know, maybe hopefully this will go okay. And Sayla's like, oh, don't worry, Amuro, you'll be fine. You're a new type. And then Amuro looks at her and is like, huh, well, if we're talking about types, like, people always say that I'm very old-fashioned. Because Amuro doesn't know what she's talking about. And so I love that he just misinterprets what she means when she says new type. Because he's, like, a big fucking dork. And because that's, like, also very true. Like, you can so see that Amuro, like, someone's just like, you're very old-fashioned, Amuro. You're, like, this weird little kid. Um, all that kind of stuff with, like, people just not under knowing this concept because it's some weird thing that, like, Zeon Zoom Daikun came up with in Side 3. It makes sense that no one understands what or has heard of the concept of new type. And so I love that everyone's kind of just, like, learning about this terminology and kind of playing with it and trying to... And not even knowing if, like, it's really real or if it is what, like, people are saying it is. Like, obviously there's something special about some of these characters, but, like... What is special about them and what actually their abilities are is still so not understood yet. And who among the crew of the White Base are new types and who are not is also something that's like, is everybody on the White Base a new type? Like, Mirai's clearly a new type. Amuro's clearly a new type. Sayla probably is. Is Hayato and Kai, like, they're fucking, fucking shit up. Is Frabo? Is Bright? You know, like, like at some point... Are, are, are they new types or are they just like really good at what they do and are like very experienced and pushed through the traumas of war to become the best that they can be at this job like where do those boundaries begin and end I love how sort of fuzzy that is in this show I love how fuzzy it is too because this is something I wanted to say is that another reason why I think the five episode push works really well is that one of the things they say most explicitly in the final episode is Shar talks about how it, it's like the crucible of war that awakens these powers that really mm-hmm. gets them going. And having it be kind of this fringe thing that is mildly foreshadowed, mind, you know, just mildly mentioned until the final five. And then when shit gets real. And in these last five, it's like this is the final push of the war. We are on the war path. There's no downtime. There's no time for thinking. It's like we are getting ready to go for the final battle. This is it. And having all of that like in the atmosphere and going around while Amuro and, and uh, Lala and everyone kind of fully start to awaken to these powers, having that all happen at the same time is perfect. And that's what makes it all so interesting is that that feels like it gives a reason for the new type stuff to happen the way it does in these final five and that new type stuff makes the big war push of these last five 
more interesting and less repetitive than it otherwise would be after we had just had a stretch of episodes that's already plenty action-packed, you know? Yeah. So I think all of that works together hand-in-hand really perfectly. Because, again, I think on paper, if you said, this show is ultimately going to revolve around psychic powers, but we're not going to name those psychic powers until, like, five episodes before the end, you would say, that's fucking terrible storytelling, that sounds awful. The way they do it in execution works really well. And I can see why the movies would want to, you know, smooth it out a little bit. But I don't think they need to. At least, I haven't seen them yet. But from what I saw in the show, I think the show gets it pretty much perfectly, even if it is unconventional in terms of narrative structure. Yeah, and I think one of the things they also accomplish by having... You know, one one of, like, the most plausible explanations of it is the one that Char gives of... That, like, the reason why we have all these new types popping up now is because their abilities are either born or are sharpened through war. Like, whatever it is, like, how wherever they come from, if it seems like, like stress and trauma is something that enhances these abilities. Um, and I, and one thing I love about that explanation, which is like for me personally, that's like kind of how I've always read the new type thing is. Like, maybe Amuro is a little bit special, like, maybe by birth, sort of, but there's, it's way more that, no, like, he's been through this stuff. Like, he's a 15-year-old kid um, who already was clearly had, like, family traumas with, like, his parents, like, separating and his mom being on Earth and all that kind of stuff before we even meet him. Um, you know, he's this weird kid who, by the, when we meet, he's the first scene he's in, he's, like, half naked in his room, like, and he hasn't eaten yet in that day that you, you find out from Frabo, and he's just, like, tinkering with toys. Like, he's kind of locked himself away. He's, there's clearly, like, kind of something up with him. Um, and so you go from him and put him on the front lines of this war that he doesn't want to be on um, and make him suffer trauma after trauma after trauma. That's what pushes him to this place where he can become a new type. And so it prevents the the thing that I think is a hard balance that some Gundam shows do well, other Gundam shows that do new type stuff struggle with, is you don't want it to be a chosen one thing. You don't, like, it's that, like the, the chosen one narrative is really antithetical to Gundam's um, themes, and so I think they do a really good job in this one of, of making it feel like Amro's Maybe Amuro is a little bit special, but it's more the scenario and who he is and, like, the actions he's taken and what he's done to grow as a person that has pushed him to the place he's, he's in. It's not just something that was, like, handed to him on a platter and here you're, like, the magic psychic boy. Yeah, and when I say the final episode is perfect and enhances the rest of the series, part of that is how the, the climactic scene of the series handles this with Amuro psychically communicating with everyone on the ship. And the way they specifically illustrate how all the different characters react to it really paints that for me in that Mm -hmm. Bright is the one who has the hardest time hearing it. He can, but like he even says like at the end, like, uh, Mirai, you talk to him. I can't. Or Fraubo, I think is who he turns. He's like, I don't have this ability. Because Bright is the oldest on the crew at this point. He's the most trained as a soldier. He's the most equipped for what happened. So he would be the least open to these powers even if I think the the implication is that all humans have some of this in them. But then you go down the rung, and, like, 
the people who were just normal civilians like Amro who got jumped into the war, they're all open to this in different ways. Like, Sela and Mirai are a little special because they, like, Sela is literally the, the daughter of Zeon Daikum, and then um, Mirai had something going on with this the whole time. But, like, Fraubo is sort of open to it because she is, like, the sort of female Amuro in this way. And then, of course, ending with Kika, Cats, and Let's are fully open to it because they're actual little kids who were jumped into this war and weren't literally killing people but were there the whole time. That all, to me, like, actually really, without them ever having to name what's going on, contextualizes it in a way that makes it very satisfying to me of what has happened to these people. Or, like, and then you have Hayato and Kai are somewhere in the middle, you kind of see there. Um, In that they're not, like, fully open to it. Like, something has definitely happened in terms of, like, these extraordinary human abilities have touched them, but they're not fully the master of it the way, like, uh, Mirai's not the master of it, but she has more control over it. So I think the show ultimately... I would agree comes down with where you're saying this, Sean. Yeah. So let's let's back up and talk about some of the the Lala episodes forty and forty one in more depth, um, because particularly a Cosmic Glow episode forty one is one of my personal favorites because that's where you get the biggest dose of two thousand one fuckery of yes. just like the most the like, crazy horseshit. Um, but uh, episode forty Lala's dilemma does open with one of my favorite like one of those trippy images that they use this animation a couple of times because it looks so good, which is when when Amuro is first sensing what Lala's doing, he has this vision of her and her, like, yellow, like, billowing dress she always has on spreading out, like, this yellow pond and her head just floating in the middle. Like, like you know, and, and it's this feeling of, like, almost like she's, like, spreading her web and she can he can feel her feeling everything else out with her abilities. And I think, like, that image of her head floating in this like yellow pond of her dress is so cool like it's like i want like that painting on a wall or something i think it's like so like elegant looking and and conveys so much of the weird kind of like abstract feeliness of what she's doing with her powers of trying to kind of feel out where things are so she can shoot them with her with her ship absolutely and i want to again repeat something i said last week on the show which i felt even more strongly this time uh watch horus prince of the sun from 1968 the isa takahata movie if tomino had not seen that movie i would be fucking surprised because there is a good dose of that here and again the connection between the character lala in this and the character um of oh god i'm forgetting her name but the the female lead in horus uh, i feel bad that i'm forgetting it but uh that character in in the horus film there is a pretty clear uh, union between the two artistically and how they are sort of illustrated. There's this whole part in Horus near the end where they fall into this like nether realm called the Forest of Doubt, I think is what it's called. And there's a lot of that with like the new type abilities. And that image in particular uh, made me think of Takahata and the, the art style of that film. So just wanted to shout that out again. But yes, that image is appropriately haunting and meaningful, but there is a lot of it here, as you say. We should probably just, while we're doing the Lala duology, talk about Lala as a character a little bit. Sure, yeah. Because it's really interesting. For a character who is this significant to the the end run of Gundam, you know, she's introduced pretty late into the game. It's um, the Fateful Encounter episode that we talked about last time is when you meet her. And her and Amuro, if I'm not mistaken, have one scene that's actually face-to-face in the entire series, right? 
Yes, yeah, where they're actually like see. Well, no, so they because they they see each other at the lake, which is when they first meet, and then they also see each other at side six when Char is driving back by, and he meets. That's when he meets Char. But that's so all one like, episode. Yeah, so they're they're technically it's like two meetings, but yes. yes, in a very short period of time. Other than that, yes, they're always in um, mobile suits uh, whenever they encounter each other, and they're always having telepathic encounters, not physical ones. Yes, so that's fascinating to me because you don't learn a ton about Lala and yet she does leave such an impact and mostly they just leave it to the telepathic realm to communicate through her that is a much more important means of building her character out than actual like you know scenes with her or flashbacks or anything like that I find the character fascinating I find her a little bit baffling I was appropriately fucked up when she dies but I'm kind of curious to hear some of of your thoughts on all of this Sean yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Lala to to talk about like what their original fifty two episode plan is is I like I had thought for sure that it would have been like Lala would have been really like there would have been a lot more stuff with her. It's actually the opposite. When they reduced the number of episodes, instead of saying like, "Well, shit," like we'll just have to like jam all the Lala stuff in here. And instead, they decided, "Well, let's just make Lala a lot more important to Amuro in the story because she's not." She gets killed um, in the original 52 episode plan, kind of around the time when she gets killed, like around like 40, episode 41 or 42. Um, so she would have been dispatched and there would have been a lot of the show without her. Um, and I think like that was really, that was one of the things I was most surprised by when I read what the original plan was. Uh, because it just so went against my expectation. But I think that's one of the things that then makes this version of Lala really fascinating is that that they they made this choice of like let's lean into this character really hard and i think that that's one of the things that sells the psychic abilities as much as it does and i think there's something about you know lala and amuro only have those like handful of meetings and usually they're they're almost for the entire time they're antagonistic towards one another it's only really like their first time they're meeting on side six and then at the very end, when they finally are kind of able to connect directly to one another in a cosmic glow, that they have any sort of, like, positive interactions. Otherwise, they're always at odds, and, and they're kind of bouncing off of each other. And it's like in uh, the Duel in Texas episode, when there's, like, them being even, like, in the same area as one another is just causing, like, weird, like, static and friction um, in, within their kind of minds. And I think it's really interesting to 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 what with the, what they do with her to kind of sell the idea of the new type of abilities, which is that even without Amuro and Lala seeing each other face to face almost ever, they're able to build a relationship in that brief moment in a cosmic glow that to me feels way way more authentic than the relationship she's had with Char the entire time, because obviously like a big part of Lala's sort of mechanism in the show is her being in between Char and Amuro that Char has taken her and kind of groomed her to be this new type weapon um and then there's that moment in episode 41 when he kisses her um and he's clearly very effectively affected by her death but it never quite feels like what Char and Lala have even when they have so much like like they're all almost every scene you see Lala in like outside of a mobile suit she's in the shot with Char even though they have that, I think they are able to communicate that the relationship that she builds with Amuro and the like brief moments that they have when they connect with one another is so much deeper and more real and more kind of like extra or something than what Shar can have. And I think 
that's one of the things I really like about Lala's character is what she kind of one what she does to push Char into a corner and like what she shows for like Amuro's potential that Amuro could potentially reach um, and like what these new type powers could do for humanity which is you know the dream and this is something that's like a big Tomino Gundam idea which is eventually everybody could be a new type everybody would be able to understand each other on this like intimate personal level and then war and like you know tragedy would have would go away because everyone would have that kind of inherent empathy um, and I think Lala is a good character to kind of communicate a lot of those ideas, even if you only have this brief window to do it in. Yeah, and I would tweak that slightly, your your conception of this between like Lala slash Char versus Lala slash Amuro, which is that they're two very different types of human interaction. Mm-hmm. And they both work for me, but one, Lala and Char, is like normal human non-psychic interaction that we have seen up to now, which is that like... Because, like, I think Char has some element of, like, he is using her for a bigger plot. But I don't view that as just Char being sociopathic and plotting. Like, I think he actually does care about this woman. She is, like, part of his larger plan of trying to foster new types and kind of get this thing moving. He does want to use her for war. But he's also using himself and everyone else for war. And I think there is some genuine kind of affection and trust there. It's, like, it's one of the only relationships we... Might be the only one we ever see Char in where there's like genuine a two-way two-way road of trust there. Where one of the most striking things about the kissing scene is that she then says, "Please, for my sake, when you go out in your mobile suit, wear your normal like spacesuit, Char," which becomes very important for the final episode. Yes, and he listens to her, and she's the first person he's ever listened to and like taken advice from. You know, if it weren't for yeah. Lala, he'd be dead in that final episode, uh, and Kaecilia Zabi would still have a fucking head. So, Mm -hmm. like, that's very striking to me. And it is very real. I think it's a very real and genuine and well-fleshed-out relationship within the confines of this this stretch. But then with her and Amuro, it's totally different. And and yet no less real and rich and meaningful, even though they don't meet face-to-face. It's not a romance. Like, I have seen... I was looking this up. There are a lot of, like, profiles of Amuro online. Like, the Wikipedia one names Lala as, like, his first great love... Or something, it's not ro- at least how I read it. It's not it's, romance. It's at- like it's yeah. It's not romance. It's like it's something that's like way bigger than romance. Like it's because it's yeah. not. I wouldn't call it like it's okay. I okay. I was because I was gonna say I wouldn't call it platonic. That's not true. I would I would call it platonic in a very literal like it's an ideal relationship. It is yes. like it is the platonic ideal of relationships. And I think like boiling it down to like he wants to kiss her or sleep with her or like like have like a romantic connection with her like yeah i don't i I don't think that that's the right way to kind of understand it because that's not even really implied in these what they have is as you say it's this connection where they are both special they're the two most advanced new types that we have seen and there's this friction between them they are often at odds and yet this and what what they are at odds though is this inherent empathy where when you feel the other person and you can feel them that fully, it's impossible to consider like killing or maiming or any of that. It's exactly what you're saying. Like with with that's one of the probably big themes of of the entire idea of new types is that if humans had these abilities, that's what would lead us to a utopian society because you couldn't do these things to someone you have that deep connection with. So I think that's interesting. And that also fuels Shar and Amuro's conflict in the final stretch is like they had 
they, like the relationships they had with Lala were like relationships with two completely different people at a certain point mm-hmm. because they were communicating on such fundamentally different levels. And I think that's part of like like as as great a character as Shar is through this entire stretch or through this entire series, it's in this stretch where I feel like you get the payoff on why Shar is in this show because mm-hmm. this is where he fully becomes a contrast to Amaro. And the contrast is not what you thought it was going to be in the first five episodes. It's not. He's a good Gundam pilot. He's a good, you know, Xeon pilot, and Amuro is a good Federation pilot, and they're going to fight. That's not the contrast. The contrast is how they're interacting with this with this woman, Lala, and I think ultimately then, kind of view on the world and what they are using their abilities and strengths to try to perpetuate. Um, and so Lala becomes a very interesting character through all that, but she's not a character you can talk about in the way you can most other characters on this show because it is so metaphysical you know yes and what she is there to show is this kind of realm beyond sense that we have had so far and you know even though she's only in a couple episodes it lands fully that Amaro's final line and the final line in the series is about like thinking about Lala's final words to him and that feels like it lands because of what she sort of offered the show absolutely so let, let's talk about um, her told like the fight in her death sequence in a cosmic glow because it's one of I think it's it's for me it's it's the best fight I was you know I think the Amuro Shar fight in the last episode is like really good but there's something about the editing of everything that goes on in the fight between Amuro and Lala and then Shar comes in and so it's Amuro versus Lala and Shar. Um, because this is Amuro, by this point, Amuro has got his, like, magnetic-coated Gundam and his, like, nobody can fucking touch Amuro. Like, Amuro is invincible for all intents and purposes in this battle. Um, so, and the only way that Lala and Shar even stand a chance is by both of them teaming up. But then Sela comes flying in, and in this, like, battle between all four of these people, and... And it's because so because Amro is trying to kill Shar but doesn't want to kill Lala. Shar is trying to kill Amro but doesn't want to kill Sela. And Lala doesn't really want to kill anybody. Like she wants to keep Shar from getting hurt. Um, I think that's her number one priority. But she doesn't want anyone to die. And like this weird balance between all four of these people fighting, I think is so. It's such an interesting dynamic. But also the opening to that fight which is Amuro and Lala having their, like, big psychic connection. And it's them, like, it flows, you know, they're just, like, floating in space with, like, their faces, the giant faces overlaid uh, in, in, like, sort of the foreground of the image. And them talking about, like, this is fate. Like, we can understand each other. Like, this is... And, and them kind of finally kind of making that connection. And then you get a bunch of new type flashes from everybody of like Mirai going, Amro, stop. And Le- and, and Sela going like, no, Amro, d- like don't. And then Char being like, Lala, get the fuck away from him. And the way that like, you have this moment where they're about to kind of like, uh, Lala and Amro are about to like mentally like converge and connect. And then they're pulled out of it all of a sudden. Uh, and then the fight begins. So that, that moment when they're about to, like, it feels like they're about to, like, become one or something. Yes. Like, there's there's some, like, weird, like, you're in such a weird abstract space, and they're about to fully converge, and then the world kind of pulls them back out of it, uh, is, is, like, such an effective sequence. Very effective. And isn't this, this, maybe it's in the previous episode, but there's a conversation between Lala and Amuro that sets up the ending where she 
is explaining what she's fighting for and that she's fighting for Shar and Shar yeah. is very important to her and all of this and and Amro is is forced to try to explain what he's fighting for and he doesn't have an answer. I also mm-hmm. think that's one of the most powerful sequences in this set of episodes because it a sets up a beautiful beautiful ending to the show but also puts a pretty fine point on Amro's journey up to now which has been one of kind of like disassembling any connections in his life. Yes, yeah, yeah, because I think it is then at the beginning of this sequence where she's like, why are you even doing this? What are you even fighting for? You aren't fighting to protect anything or you're not fighting for any sort of ideology. Like Amro's just fighting to, especially at this point, it just kind of feels like he's fighting to fight. Like he's so lost in it. And I think that's one of the things that Lala kind of helps pull him back out of it a little bit. But it is part of Amro's role in the show that I think is like important um, and it's actually this is one of the things that changes in the 52 episode plan um, is that Amro never really has an ideology like he at the end he realizes that he's he's fighting for his friends and for the white base and to be able to kind of go home with them um, but he's never he doesn't have like a grand ideal he's not Shar like Shar has an ideology that he's ultimately fighting towards he has like an ideal that he wants to make the world like shape the world in a specific way and Amro doesn't have anything like that and I think that that's like a really important dynamic there. And I think it's a it's really fascinating the way that like Lala puts a point on it, especially because I feel like at this point in the show, you've been with Amro so long that you as a viewer, at least I felt this way, like have lost sight of, oh, like, yeah, why is Amro fighting? Like at some point, and it's kind of really impossible to kind of exactly feel when it happened but Amro went from someone who was like fighting desperately just so he could survive to someone who's like people are fighting against you desperately so that they can survive and and that shift happens so subtly that as a viewer I felt like oh god right like why are you fighting Amro like at this point you could stop like you could stop like and nobody could stop you from stopping fighting because you're better at fighting than anybody um, and so why are you keep, why do you keep on going? And, you know, and that's part of the story of the last two episodes is Amro kind of like cementing that answer for himself. And I think it's when you talk about the moment where he and Lala are almost converging, it's, that's part of it is that she's offering him like a vision of like why to fight. And he finds it kind of, even though she's talking about like his mortal enemy, Shar, he finds it kind of seductive. And that's part of like the merging is like her trying to heal him and him having something to like gain from her and all of, and again, as you say, there's almost this convergence and then it's torn away. And we do have this amazing four way battle where for the first of several times in this show, I thought Sayla was for sure going to die. There's like seven different times in these last five episodes where I thought Sayla was like killed and then she was still alive. There's like several moments where they do a shot where I'm like, oh, that's, oh, fuck, Sayla's dead, and then she's not. And I, I found that kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, she's definitely put into harm's way. It's like, it, but, but Sayla's such a fucking badass, they could not, they could never kill her. She's no, I'm so glad, cool. I should say, I'm glad she yes. never dies, but there are, I'm just going to say, people on Gundam have died from less. Because, like, she gets the fucking, like, cockpit breached at the, in the final episode, she gets her head knocked against the wall in a very violent shot. Yeah. Yeah, so. so she definitely gets, she definitely gets fucked up a bit in the end here. But, yeah, and it's specifically, like, that sequence of events where, like, Amro's yelling, and it's, it's, everybody's just, like, yelling at each other. And Amro's yelling at Sayla to get away, because it's like, Sayla, stop, like, you can't, like, handle this, like, this fight is 
fucking crazy. Like, I'm fighting Char in, like, Psychic Lady with the magic mobile suit. Like, get the fucking fighter plane out of here. Um, and and then Char is, like, about to hit Sayla's plane. And then Lala yells at Char, like, Char Tysa, stop! And he has this moment where he, like, kind of moves the blade a little bit and sees in the cockpit that it's, he's Articia. Because every time Sushi Ikeda says, Aruticia, I am very happy because he says that name very well. Um, and then you, then you get, like, what is, like, such a great sudden cut of, like, he like he avoids hitting Artesia, and then it's an immediate cut to the Gundam cutting off the Gelgoog's arm. And it's just, like, this really ferocious, frenetic fight. It, like, people should just, like, go back and just watch that, like, one-minute clip because it is so well edited and choreographed and put together of of just the desperation in this just like fucking mosh pit of Gundam um, and, and mobile suit fighting. And then of course you get uh, the is going in to deal the finishing blow on Char. Lala and her Elmeth shove Char out of the way. Amuro's beam saber plunges into the Elmeth and you get um, just like one of the most shocking series of shots, which is just Amuro screaming like Lala and then cut into the interior cockpit of the Elmeth, and this is one of my favorite shots, is Lala screams, her helmet visor explodes, and, like, new type psychic, like, lightning shit, like, shoots up into the sky, and then it cuts back to, um, like, an overlay of Amro's eyes in the foreground, and then just, like, water, like, filling up from the bottom of the screen, and then dividing, like, the red fucking sea. It's such a cool sequence of events. It's amazing. Backing up just a tad... I do love throughout these five episodes, but it really reaches a fever pitch here, like Amuro's sheer bloodlust for Char, which mm. is what leads him to ultimately kill uh, Lala. But like, there's even a scene, I think, when he's... It's either the episode before this, because there's two sorties where Lala is out there fighting and, yeah. and Char is there too. But I think it's this one where uh, Amuro is trying to get to Char and there's one like... Um, Rickdom there, and he's like, "Get the f- get out of my way!" And he just blows this Rickdom out of the way, and then goes in for the kill. And and yes, so there's all this bloodlust building because he just wants to get to Shar, and he has that stab, gets in Lala's cockpit. I agree, that series of shots is stunning. Very that's that's where it started to transition for me from like this is 2001 to this is a David Lynch movie. It made me think mm-hmm. a lot of if you've seen Twin Peaks: The Return, Part Three which is the episode where Kyle MacLachlan's character, um, or a version of it, <laughs> comes back, yes. and he's, like, in that lighthouse on the sea, and he, like, flies over it and all of that. There's definitely some imagery that made me think of that. And, yes, like, trying to convey what would it be to deal a killing blow to someone you have a psychically converging link with, that's, I feel like, what those series of images are trying to communicate and it does it incredibly powerfully, even before we get the insert song that just makes everyone cry. I assume. Yes. It, yeah. The the it, like it's. I I wonder if they chose the name Amaro because it sounds really good when people sing it. Because it really it does. Like they have because they have a couple of songs like the ending song and this insert song where it's just like someone singing the name Amaro is like ten percent of the lyrics, and it's just a good fucking name for 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 singing. But yeah, you, you so he kills Lala. Um, you get yeah the shot of the water filling up with Amuro's eyes in the foreground, which is another like I just want that poster. Like this, it's just such a good shot. 
Um, and then the whole series of abstract images and like these like two figures dancing among the stars in like this like idyllic like Sweden like visage of like mountains in a lake and then just sort of like playing. Um, and I think one of the most striking ones every time I've, I've seen the sequence like this is the one that like strikes me the hardest is the one at the very ending which is like this weird shot of like basically what's like an egg being fertilized like it's sperm converging on an egg in the middle and that's the the last moment like it's a very weird series of images um, and that also is overlaid with Amaro and Lala having this like weird last psychic communication about like will people ever be able to understand each other um, and like a lot of Armour's lines here are like very iconic of him saying stuff like, yes, even one day people will be able to control time. Like, like we, we have infinite potential basically. And then she dies. Uh, and, and like the part that always hits me so hard every single, single time I watch this episode, this hits me really hard is that cut back into Amaro's cockpit and he's in tears and he just screams like I've I've done something I can never take back which is like what he literally says in Japanese Torikashi no Naikoto Oste Shimatta and like he just sort of the way that Toru Furia just cries that line um like his performance in this episode I think is the best stuff he does in Gundam like it's like his his like just screams and his like sobs like he Amaro is pushed to the most extreme emotional places in this episode and as with like everything Furia does as Amaro and Gundam he just plays it so fucking raw it's really painful it is I agree it's his best work I, it should be the end of the episode that's my biggest complaint mm-hmm. with this one and this stretch is that I feel like that needed to sit because what it is is that's like five minutes from the end. Then we have to go back and deal with the firing of the solar ray. And then we're back on white base and Amuro has gotten over it pretty fast. And then he comes on the bridge. And I do love the actual ending where he has the very weird ominous line about like, don't go into the light and all of that. I feel like those last five minutes should have been a separate 22 episode or minute episode of Gundam. And that we could have had, like, this one, like, Lala's death be the one that, like, you, you leave the episode on that. I, I don't know if you agree, but I did feel no, that. I, I honestly, I actually disagree. There's something about, like, one, I think it's that, like, because it's, like, the most, like, Amuro is so not fine scene of, like, when he's back on the white base and everyone's like, Amuro, are you okay? And Amuro's like, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine, guys. Right, Hato? I'm 100% fine. Everything's great here in Amuroville. Like, I'm totally cool. It is yeah. like, you are not fine, Amuro. You are fucked up. Um, and then you get the resolution to um, the zombie subplot that we should talk about, which is Girin backstabbing and killing his dad, Degwin. And yeah, he fires the solar ray. And that last moment where Amuro runs out and he's like, no, don't like like move uh it's like there's the he if this line is specifically it's something like there's like hundreds of people are dissolving in a whirlwind of light it's the light of hatred and that's the the moment the episode ends on um there's something about that of like i get what you're saying um with like wanting to have it end on lala's death but there's something to me that makes it even more impactful to see amro sort of like pretending that he's okay and then immediately he has another like psychic mental breakdown at the very end of the episode that is also the like 
I like the dual meaning of the title of the episode, A Cosmic Glow, which is a pretty literal translation of the Japanese title, which is like one of them is like, it's like the psychic glow of Lala, but then it's also the glow of the light of hatred that yeah. is like driving this war forward. And, and is like ultimately in like the abstract, like symbolic sense is the real reason why, why Lala dies is not Shar or Amuro. It's this whole fucking thing. It's the light of hatred. It's this war being driven by this hateful, petty, um, stubborn, cruel, power-hungry man, Girin Zabi, and having it end on that. There's something about like in the 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 tapestry of the ending of Gundam that I I personally really like. No, I totally get it, and it's it's part of the tension of doing so much in so few episodes. Yeah, is that there's there's going to be some moments where you feel like it's rubbing up on itself. I've I I want to watch it again because I've only seen these episodes once. You've seen them at least three times. I feel like I might have a different because because that's the thing is also just watching it for the first time. I think it's yeah. just a little bit of whiplash. I'm sure if I watch because I I see what you're saying and I really I find myself nodding along like yeah that sounds right. So I would have to take a second look at it. That was my like initial first blush reaction was just like boy that happened fast. But it, that's also like but then I also like immediately hit the next episode and I'm like I can't stop this. So maybe that's good. Maybe that's like kind of the intended point is that. If we're not pausing after Lala's death, well, neither is Amuro because there's a giant fucking light in the sky killing half of the Federation army. So there you go. Yeah. Let's back up and talk about two different things. I want to get to all the Zabi family drama because it's amazing. In these it's final- so good. Oh, man. But, Sean, we skipped Char gets an insert song. I realized that, yeah, that we kind of skipped over some of the stuff in uh, episode 40. Yes, one of, like, it's one of the things that I'm, I have to assume that this song was commissioned before um, they realized they were going to get a reduced episode run. Because I feel like the only thing wrong with this song is that it's played in a scene where Char gets his ass kicked by Amuro. Um, which is because it's it's such a good song, and I wish it was just played in a scene where Shar got to be very cool. Um, well, I feel yes. like that that song must have been commissioned with the intent that they would use it more than once. Probably yes, in the same because the the song that plays over Lala's death is also the song that plays at the end of the Solomon yeah. uh, arc. So yes, they probably were going to use that. You're right, use that insert song multiple times. Um, but the song itself is so good. It's called Shagakuru or Shagakuru or Char Char attacks basically. Char comes. Um and it's so good. It's like this weird fucking like pseudo jazz. Like I don't need, I've never heard a song that quite sounds like Shagakuru. Um but it's another where I said earlier about like they must have picked the name Amro because it sounds good when you kind of like croon it out um in a very beautiful way. Shar is also a very good name to sing, but in a very different way of that it, it sounds like it almost sounds like an instrument when people just go sha 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 and and that like punctuating each like basic verse basically at the end of each verse of that song they just go sha 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 um it's very good it's a great fucking song it's great when it started you know my subtitles said at the bottom shar and I was like well, I just heard, I think, what sounded like, you know, like a tambourine go off. No one said Shar. And then they do it again. I'm like, oh, that's someone singing percussively. Shah. And it's yes. like, oh, my God, we're getting a song, aren't we? And I, I like this. The sequence played and I immediately had to rewind it and watch it a second time. Because it's a, while Shar does get his ass kicked, it's a good fight. It's a good song. It's a very dramatic. Because that's also like, 
you are on the edge of your seat waiting for something to happen in these two episodes because you've got Lala, Amaro, Shar, Sela. Someone's going to die. Like something's going to give across these two episodes. It ultimately happens at the end of Cosmic Glow. But not knowing that, I fe- until the next episode preview just literally says Lala will perish. <laughs> Yes, I love I love Japan's complete and utter rejection of spoiler phobia. It is it is the salve we need in the world today, quite frankly. Yeah, if more people watched old anime, they would just not give a shit about like spoiler culture or whatever. Yeah, I, I half wish that like Avengers Endgame, the trailers had just had like and Tony Stark will die. That would have yep. been such a fuck you to spoiler culture. Anyway, but um. Yes, uh, anyway, good fight scene, very tense. The Char song just enhances everything. Yeah, and, and it's like that Char song is what makes you, like, it's the thing that you know that the people making this show get it. They know, it's like Char was not an accident. It was not a coincidence that Char is like the coolest fucking character in the world. They like 100% do what they were making. And it's like, when you get to that sequence, like that was one of the things where I was like, this show really like was not that popular on first airing because that feels like such a like glory lap move of like we have a fucking song about our like villain who's actually like you ultimately like Shars I don't think is technically even really a villain of the show but you have like you have like one of your main characters that seems to be the villain we could have a fucking sh- song about him that's just his name being said like fifteen times is like like half of the lyrics um. That just feels like a thing that a show would normally do after it's, like, very successful on its, like, third season or something. Not something that's like a... No, our show didn't even make it to its full original, like, ep- like you know, promised episode run. We still have this kick-ass fucking song about our kick-ass character, Char. Um, it's such a fucking power move. I love it. It's pretty great. Let's talk about the zombies. Because... Yes. So, let me see if I can get all these names. Because the mm-hmm. full family through the show... Was we have um, Giren at the head of the army. You have yep. Kaecilia as like the other admiral. You have Dozelzabi. You have Garma. That's all the kids, right? Yes. Okay. And then the leader, the 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 patriarch is. I always forget his name. You're gonna have to tell me. It starts with a D. I want to say Dogen, but it's not Dogen. <laughs> this it's you're close. It's Degwin. Degwin. Okay, Degwin. Yeah. That's why I get mixed up. Um. If they had called him Dogen Zabi, that would have been kind of weird in so many other yeah. ways. But yes, Degwin Zabi. Okay, so you've got Degwin Zabi, and, and the players on the board right now is Garma was taken off early on by Shar, Dozel was taken off in the Battle of Solomon, and we're left with Kaecilia and um, Giren. Giren, and then, not Dogen, Degwin, Degwin. Is, is off in uh, back on his throne. And that's at the start, you have three Zabis left. By the time the series is done, there are no Zabis left. Yes, I and I love the like how all the zombie stuff culminates here because because throughout the course of the show you've gotten like this brief like every like four or five episodes or so you would cut back to you know like Degwin in the palace inside three or you'd cut to or Girin who's also there with a good Degwin or you'd like have like Dozel show up in like a radio communication with Shar or when you're on Earth you had a lot of the stuff with like Cassilia because she was Makuve's. Um, commander and so you just get these brief glimpses at the zombie family and like their kind of their politics um and i like the way it progresses of it basically is it feels like you know garma and dozel were the only two zombies that were like 
good people that were like happened to be on the wrong side of the war but like you know if Garma and Dozel had been born on the Federation side they would have been fine it's just they happened to be fighting with the Nazis um but like as people they seem fine um but Kaecilia and Girin are both very like manipulative power hungry kinds of people and then Degwin has kind of sort of abdicated his power to Girin mostly um until he decides to kind of like overseed him in the end which gets him killed and so I like that sense of after Garma and then especially Dozel get taken off the board, the zombies just basically immediately start to self-destruct because the kind of like the best zombies are gone. And so it's only the people who are going to backstab each other are left. And so th- every time you cut to them and get the sense of like Degwin is clearly kind of fed up with Giran's power-hungry bullshit. Like Degwin seems like he is fundamentally like a politician. And so he ultimately makes the choice, I'm going to go meet with General Revel and try to, like, sue for peace because I know that Girin is going to lose this war. Girin is so megalomaniacal and, like, power-hungry. He's And they have that... We should talk about that conversation he has with his dad about Hitler. Um, and Girin doesn't really know who Hitler is and is just kind of following his path because Girin also has all this, like, we're the space people, like, we're the best, like, we're going to reduce the human population so only the best people survive. And then you have Cassilia, who doesn't seem to have, like, the, like, like, Zeon superiority thing that Girin does. But clearly she wants to have, like, all the power. And she's, like, a dope purple space ninja lady. And she's super cool. So she's, like, also maneuvering. And so all of them kind of maneuvering around each other. And the way that series of events plays out where Girin... I love it. Like, Girin... Kills Degwin. Cassilia comes back to Abawaku, finds out, shoots fucking Girin in the back of the head, and then ultimately Shard takes out Cassilia. Like, it's such a great series of events to show the way that the family and power of Zeon just sort of self-destructs and implodes in on themselves. They eat themselves alive. They, yep. they very much reap what they sow. The only member of the, like, Zeon royal family, the only member of the Zabis who gets what you might call an honorable wartime death is Dozel, because he's the only one who kind of seemed to live honorably and also be a competent military man, which is what Garma did not have, you know? Yeah. And so, like, Dozel gets to have this great final stand. And he, Dozel is also the only one who is directly killed by the crew of the White Base without interference from Shar. You know, like, Shar's yeah. around for that, but Shar did not manipulate the death of Dozel the way he did the death of Garma. Like, Garma is dead because of Shar, even if the White Base fired the shot. Yes, I mean, Shar called Garma in Garma's final moments to make it very clear to Garma that he's dead because of Shar. Yes, exactly. So, Dozel, and and they make that abundantly clear in the series that Dozel even gets out of his fucking mobile suit and just starts firing a machine gun at the the Gundam. So, like, Dozel got to die like the honorable soldier. Otherwise, Garma died like an absolute bitch to Shar (laughs) because Shar wanted that. And then the rest of them either eat themselves alive or get killed by Shar, which the only reason they're open to being killed by Shar is because they fucked over Shar's family royally at some point in the past. So it's entirely them reaping what they sowed and and eating themselves alive. And I think that is, because I will say going into these five episodes, if I was making a list of things I wanted, it's like, I want to see the end of the Zabi family and I want them to A, eat themselves alive and B, get taken out by Shar. And I, even in the back of my head, because again, I did not know where this was going. I had not looked at spoilers or anything. Um, 
But I was like, the final episode needs to have something where Char is like fleeing from an exploding base and goes to kill the last zombie family member. And I got that better than I ever could have imagined. Uh-huh. Um, they just, they do it all fucking perfectly. And and we've got to start with the whole thing between Degwin and Giren because that's really fascinating because it's been pretty heavily implied since we met Degwin back in uh, Garma's Fate is the one where we finally meet them, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's pretty heavily implied that Degwin is like just, um, he's like the queen or something, you know, he is there as like a figurehead, but that all the power really rests in his children and that he's not necessarily happy about it, but he's also not doing anything. And then in this episode, we finally get that. And that is, um, you know, as fast as these episodes are, they do have a couple of down moments where they, they let some scenes breathe. And that's one of them, the big conversation between Degrin and Girin. And if you didn't have that, I think this last stretch would be significantly weaker. Because having Degwin just full-on call him on the Hitler connection and talk about it, A, something only a Japanese show would do. <laughs> just uh-huh. just name-checking Hitler that often. We can talk about that in a minute. But like, I do think it's really interesting to see Giren's motivations, how far gone he is, and that Degwin has been a fucking coward... But he will ultimately try to sue for peace, and Giren is the kind of you know manipulative bastard who will let him do that because he know he'll be in the light of fire. Yeah, and so yeah, that conversation, like like I remember that being like I have such a distinct memory of the first time I watched Gundam and the first time he just says Hitler. I'm like, holy shit! Oh my god! Like someone like like that just doesn't happen in media, and it was something I hadn't really ever thought about. Because it's weird because we, we as, like, a culture, we talk about Hitler fucking constantly. But our, in our media, he very rarely ever actually comes up as, like, a, like, concept. Um, and, like, a historical concept. And it's really fascinating the way that Gundam sort of contextualizes it as, at this point in the Universal Century, like... All the, the World War Two was such a long time ago. I, th- I think Girin like says something like, "Oh, he was one of those dictators from like the middle period of Earth's history." Like that was a long time ago. Um, and so Girin doesn't really, and I love this detail that Girin doesn't seem very interested in history. He doesn't really know much about Hitler. Like he heard the name probably because like it came up in a test. Like Girin was in space school or whatever, you know. Um, but but Degwin seems like. Again, like, Degwin feels like he's a bastard, but he's fundamentally a politician first, like, not a military person. So he feels very well educated, even if he's a fucking piece of shit. Um, And so him knowing all this connection with the path that Girin is moving down with, like, his racial superiority stuff and his trying to, like, drive his soldiers into this, like weird kind of, you know, patriotic frenzy with the Zig Zeon stuff. Like, all of that... Degwin understanding the historical parallels there and knowing that it's like this is not a path that usually when people walk it they win like usually this ends with either they lose the war or at the very least they themselves are destroyed in the kind of the 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 fire that they have created for themselves um and so him trying to put that out and Giren just not giving a fuck like Giren's like yeah no cool yeah I'm like that Hitler guy yeah great yeah. Like, I'm going to win this war Dictators are not generally well-versed in history. That's kind of Mm -hmm. one thing about authoritarians. Like, we see that today in the world with the rise of authoritarianism. Like, Donald Trump has never cracked a fucking history book, and we know that. 
You know, like yeah. uh, Donald Trump's supporters haven't cracked a fucking history books. And the ones who have are the neo-Nazis who are fully in support of it and are good to go with the concentration camps and everything. So, like, that also feels like actually, I think, very astute a historical observation that Gundam is making there. Which is that yeah. Giren, like, the show has been using... Like Nazi imagery because it is the shorthand we use in media around the world for fascism, basically, uh, to show that the the Zeon army are space fascists. And then to just have, as you say, Degwin, who is the politician who is more learned, to just call him on it and be like, this isn't going to work for you. This didn't work for him. And Giren's like, eh, fuck it. That Hitler guy sounds cool, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is probably what, like, Donald Trump would say if someone said, hey, there's a guy named Hitler who loves you. He's like, I love that guy. That's what he would do, right? Uh, Giren yeah. is kind of like that, a little smarter, but there you go. Yeah, and I, I think it's one, again, this is another thing that's pretty different from the original plan, is in the original plan for the 52 episodes, Giren would be have been a much more effective military commander at, at, in the like end. Um, and I think I love here that it's like, he does manage to deal a very devastating blow to the Federation, but he completely fucked everything up. Like, if it hadn't been for him doing all the horseshit he does, Zeon could have won this war. Like, if Zeon wins at Abawaku, Zeon basically wins the war because the Federation is routed. They do not have enough momentum, or they don't have enough, like, time and money and soldiers to regain the momentum they would have lost. Um, and so, like, Zeon has a chance to win this war, and Giren just being a fucking idiot and a just petty backstabbing sack of shit loses that war for them and i like that i like that like ultimately it's basically like his fault and like it's his fault and the fault of Cassilia and degwin and like all the people in the leadership that are this like petty and incompetent um and don't have their kind of like eye on the prize or whatever you know like if dozel had been in command of that defense dozel would have probably won that battle um, but because it's Giren and he's way more interested in having all the power to himself, they lose the war and they're all just like brutally killed. And it's very satisfying to see that play out. It's very, very satisfying. And man, when you realize what Giren is planning and like you put it all together that he's got like a big version of the solar system weapon called the solar ray and he's firing it right down the center line. And oh, uh, Dogen, God damn it, Degwin is going there to do a peace talk. Oh shit, he's going to kill his dad and wipe out General Revel and like all the command ships of the Federation fleet. That is a pretty great, like, oh my fucking god, they're going there moment. Um, even if it is ultimately kind of short sighted on the part of uh, Mr. Gear and Zabi there. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, and that just, that. Because that's also, like, I love the sequence of it's of... Because the Cosmic Glow, episode 41, ends with Amuro just, like... The, it ends with the solar ray powering up and firing. And Amuro running out and saying, there are hundreds of people, you know, dissolving in a whirlwind of light. It's the hatred. It's the light of hatred. And then, the, and then it cuts. And then the next episode starts with just, like... It's, like, the Great Degwin, which is Degwin's obby ship. Because he's, you know... He's the well, so he has a ship fucking named after himself, which is a, a good detail. I think is dumb. Um, and then General Revel in his command ship, and they see each other. It's like, oh, is that the Great Degwin? Is like, are we going to be able to sue for peace? And it's like, and and I love like while they're having the conversation, there's some like tech dude in the corner who's like, is there some weird like heat signature? And and nobody's like paying attention to him. And then like thirty seconds later, they're all just fucking completely disintegrated. And you just watch Revel dissolve. It's like like Cell at the end of Dragon Ball Z the Cell Saga or something, where he just, like, dissolves in the beam of light. 
um, and they're all killed. And that's like such a an incredible way to kick off the last um, two episodes of Gundam is with just fucking General Revel is gone. Degwin Zabi is gone. And it's like from this point out, it's just like a no hold, like sudden death match basically between the, the remaining Federation forces and Zeon hold up in the space fortress Abawaku, which I still contend is maybe the greatest name in the history of science fiction for anything fucking ever. Abawaku. It's very good. Uh, it's another one that is sort of inexplicably spelled in its English romanization. Um, although I do like how how crazy it looks with the fucking their 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 love for cues in the romanization of a letter that does not exist in Japanese. Yes, and then and, when, and it's very rarely used in English. Very yeah, rarely used really in English. Like using it. And when put next to a U in English, does not mean coup. Yes, <laughs> but anyway, it's great. Uh, I also have to say, I do find it fairly satisfying that General Revel gets killed in the Blast of Light. I didn't hate the guy mm-hmm. or anything, but, you know, he was kind of the face of, like, the dickish side of the Federation. So, you know, if anyone had to perish in that Blast of Light, I think it should have been him. Yeah, and it's something where I I always forget that he gets killed. Like, every like I've watched it, I guess, two times now since I've known like, the ending. And every time I've gotten to that part, even though I watched it like a couple of months ago, I forget like, oh, right, shit, General Revel just gets fucking like disintegrated. I just forget that that happens because he's, well, he's not like a main character. He's popped up like since like around like episode 11 or something. So you've been like, you've heard his name and seen him a bunch of times at this point. This is like, oh, shit, fucking yeah. Oh, my God. They just killed General Revel. Again, he's the most visible face of the Federation hierarchy. Yes. Yeah. yeah who who are dicks. And so, yes, that's. General Revel probably didn't deserve to to, get, to go out that way, but, you know, I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, you know, he put a bunch of kids on the battlefield. Fuck him. Uh-huh. Yeah, fuck him. He he told Frau Bo she had to go to prison if she wanted off the ship. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway. If, if, you, if you like the Federation being assholes, I remember in the compilation movies, they doubled down on some of that stuff, and, which is one of the additions I like a lot. Okay. Well, that'll that'll be for next time. But for this time, yes. we have the final battle at Albaku. I think the penultimate episode is somewhat overshadowed by the final episode, but it is a good setup for like getting everyone in the position where everything's going to be just fucked for that final episode. Yeah, I mean, more than any other episodes in this show, forty two and forty three are basically one big episode. Yes. Like it's, I mean, forty two ends with the most killer fucking uh, cliffhanger because episode forty two ends with. Amuro and Char about to collide with each other and then it like does that great like you know cuts to the to, like the the what you just saw is animation animation but now it's like a really heavily detailed still image and like shot reverse shot of the Gundam and the Xiong and the narrator just being like finally on the battlefield Char and Amuro the like faded rivals or like whatever big speech he gives it's such a great way to like pump you up for the end of this uh show but yes like these two episodes 42 is very much the we're putting all of our like moving our chess pieces into place and 43 that like allows episode 43 to just be like execution payoff 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 and it's fucking amazing yeah the biggest thing to talk about in 42 is 42 is yes so 42 is you have kaecilia kill giren which is oh my god such a good because like i knew she was mad at him about the whole uh degwin thing and i'm like what are they going to do with that but then she walks up behind him and shoot him and shoots him in the head it's fucking i mean that yeah, that whole sequence of... Because it's something that just builds gradually over the course of the whole episode. Because at the very beginning of the episode, Cassilia goes 
Um, she says, like, here, like, Char, you go get in a mobile suit. You get this in this new Zeong. I've heard it's only 80% uh, complete, which is, we'll get to that payoff we'll to, for what that so means. Because it's so good. Uh, but she sends Char away, and then she goes to Abaku and to the command where, where Garrett is. And, like, that slow buildup of her, like, kind of occasionally just walking up and kind of questioning Garen more about the Degwin stuff, and her kind of slowly taking command of the room and controlling, like, different phases of the battle, and then ultimately culminating in her walking up behind him um, and, and uh, I forget what, because what is, because Garen says something about, like, you, like you're, you wouldn't kill me, like, and she says, like, oh, how naive you are, brother, and there's just, like, a twinkle in her eye, she pulls out her fucking laser gun, and just through, like, the chair, through the back of his head, and, and they're in zero G, so his body just floats up and bounces off the monitor in front, and the guy at the monitor just looks up and is like, is that Supreme Commander Giren? And it's like, and because he is like, even the Supreme Commander cannot get away with Patricide. Like, like if you want to arrest me, you can arrest me after this battle. And she just takes control of the room. It's just such a great slow build up to the coolest fucking payoff possible. Because you say she shoots him, she doesn't just like pull out her sidearm and shoot him in the head. She pulls out this like giant fucking rifle. And yes. shoots through the chair, and yes, through, shoots through the chair, this giant hole in his head, and he goes floating and bumps off the monitor. No, it is a great moment. It's an objectively stupid thing for Kaecilia to do in that moment, like, maybe wait to kill the dude after the battle's over, but it is so in character for her, for, like, the limited amount we have seen Kaecilia, of course she would do that, and it is such a great fuck you moment. Oh, I love it. I also... I was on YouTube last night, just rewatching some of my favorite scenes uh, from mm-hmm. from this last from these last couple episodes, and someone had done an edit together with um, Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride saying, "My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die." They lay that over Kaecilia right before she shoots him, and it's a pretty great little fan edit. <laughs> that's that's very. I have not seen that. That is very fucking good. Yeah, it's just like I. It's the perfect death for Giran. It's so good. Of he, the Giran, the backstabber gets you know. Not backstabbed. He gets shot through the back of the head. Um, taken out like a bitch. It's great. It's just and and like I think the thing that makes it the most Gundam death possible is that extra detail of his body floating and bouncing off the monitors and everybody in the room looking at it and being like, "What the fuck just happened?" Yeah, exactly. Um, like no, yeah. it's it's not. I feel like a standard sci-fi show would like everyone would pull their guns immediately, but this is like. I didn't expect the Supreme Commander to be dead floating in this room. Let me process this for a moment. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's, and I feel like it's a pretty realistic for, of like, I mean, cause she's the second in command. There's a bunch of people in that room that are armed that are clearly her people that are loyal to her. Um, so I feel like, yeah, most other shows would immediately like that would turn into some big shootout or something. And this feels like a way more realistic version of, nope, like most people would just like, this is my job. I am like part of the Zeon military. Like this is fucked up. That's fa- that's like, their family. That's not my family. That's them. I'm going to leave them to that. Yes. Like I have, okay, Cassilia, you're my new commanding officer. Like, great. Yep. You're commander in chief of the Zeon forces. Awesome. Like I'll just keep on doing my job. Don't shoot me in the back of your head with your big laser rifle, please. So, so good. I mean, Kaecilia, we've had her around for much of the series, but I really loved her in these last five episodes. In particular, just her character design is probably my favorite of the Zabi family, especially with the little, like, you know, purple hood she pulls up over her mouth and her dumb mask. Like, she clearly is the, has the greatest affinity with Char for just dressing and design. (laughs) 
Yeah, because because I don't think they they don't ever really get it get into it that much in this show. But she her role is like one of her major roles is that she's in command of like intelligence and espionage. So her looking like a dope purple space ninja is like feels like it fits with her role in the military. Um, but yeah, like she's just. I love Cassilia Zabi so much. She's such an interesting, cool character, and her like very gaunt face. And the and I I I think they make really good use of her having that like face mask thing because of her like the moments when she sort of pulls it off and puts it back on. Like it's a little like kind of like good character detail of her kind of like getting into her like I'm going to fuck shit up mode because I think she does that before she shoots gear and in the back of the head she does because um, one cool thing they do in the in the sound design is the voice gets slightly muffled when she does that like mm-hmm. i assume the actor is like talking through a cloth or something which i feel like a lot of anime wouldn't do that because it's pretty normal to have anime with someone behind a mask and it's just the actor talking which is fine but like that attention to detail it's slight but it's very nice to have yeah and it's just like Cassilia is this character that you you like she has a lot of char in her she's got like that same kind of like cool vibe even if she's definitely evil um like if I had to pick an evil zombie, I would one hundred percent follow Cassilia because she's at least very cool absolutely yes um I feel like I'd probably pick Dozel if I wanted to live <laughs> yes but but he's not nearly as cool he's a big dope like no. I like Dozel, but Cassilia is fucking just like cool yes absolutely you might get shot in the back of the head at any moment but there you go you'd enjoy it while you hang out with a cool purple space ninja lady like she's fucking dope yes exactly all right um anything else that happens in 40 okay okay no no no. back up let's talk about the zeong yes so i this this is just a legendary moment in the history of gundam of this like i i think it's like the best possible payoff to the like thing of the Zeons constantly like making like they're you know they've changed their production style to like we're just putting out one off like weird experimental mobile suits to try to find something that can one up the Gundam even though again at this point I feel like they're probably like six or seven mobile suits deep into mobile suits that are probably technically more powerful than the Gundam right it's just that Amuro can fuck their shit up because the Gundam's not even good enough for Amuro um but yeah, you have all this stuff of like Cassilia being like, it's only 80% complete. I don't really know what it is, but like you go get in that. It's probably like, I'm sure nobody's piloting it. And then, and then you get later, you cut to Char walking through the hallway with this engineer who's like low key, one of the best like characters in Gundam. And Char's like, oh, I've, I've heard it's only 80% complete. And he's like, 80%? No, it's 100%. Like, it's good to go. And they get into the room, and there's this big, dopey-looking mobile suit that has no legs. And Carl looks at it, or Charlotte looks at it and says, like, but it doesn't have any legs. And the engineer just looks at him and is like, oh, those are just for show. The, the, the people up in charge don't understand this kind, these kinds of things. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, we're fighting in space. You're right. The legs are just for show. Like, you don't fucking need legs on this fucking mobile suits at all. I was howling with laughter, Sean. It is such a beautifully self-aware moment of just just taking the piss out of, like, the entire mecha genre, I feel like, at a certain point with that line of just, yeah, it doesn't fucking need legs. We're in space. It's a big suit of armor that you've made look like a person for 
no perceptible reason at a certain point. It is such a good... And then it, it is in the penultimate episode that we get to that point, and then Char is going around in this really sick-looking suit. I love the look of the Zeong. It's like a really big version of the, the Gyan, the one that Makabe yeah. had. It kind of looks like a knight. But, of course, it, ha- it just has no legs, and it's fine. That is not a problem, because the legs are not necessary. And, yes, I agree. That engineer is low-key one of my new favorite Gundam characters. Yeah, it's just like... like because you just haven't gotten like because there's a couple of characters that kind of take after that like the like straight talking engineer who's like you know tells it like it is there's some other gundam characters later on that have that role um but i feel like this is the first time you get that it's like yeah this guy doesn't give a shit like he knows his stuff he's he's an engineer he's been working on mobile suits forever it's like you like whatever like the like clearly unless the only time you'd need legs is if you're fighting on earth but this is a space fight this is a space-based mobile suit like the only reason we would put legs on it is because the brass think it thinks it looks cool. It's like entirely for aesthetics, um, which is just such a great fucking classic moment. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then Char gets into the Zeong, and we we head into the the final episode, Escape. Oh my god this this episode, Jonathan. It's one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. It's uh huh. It's next level great. There are not like there are plenty of shows with really good finales. The whole, the whole like uh, stereotype of like story driven shows that end poorly is actually like a couple of shows that notably end poorly, and mostly I think shows end just fine more often than not, and sometimes end very well. But there are very few I would point to that end this well where you would say the finale is in contention for the best episode. Like, I don't know if I would mm-hmm. say 100% this is the best episode of Gundam, but it's in the inner circle, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And there's not very many TV shows, animated, live action, what have you, I could point out where you would say that the last standalone episode, that is the peak of that show. Because it's hard to peak at your ending. It's I think it's, it's like doing a good ending. Most good stories need a good ending. Peaking at your ending, that's hard because the ending isn't usually the fun part, you know? The ending is where you have to wrap up the story and you have to like be kind of a sober storyteller. Uh, but Gundam, you get to just have fucking fencing in space. And you get to just everything. Everything is so good in this fucking episode, Sean. Yeah. So, like, because one is since you have uh, episode 42 kind of be able to put everything into place and then end with Amaru and Shar about to like properly clash. It, this means that episode 43 just gets immediately start. And, like, basically the first half of episode 43 is dedicated to Amaro and Char fighting. Obviously, it, like, cuts to the white base crew doing stuff, and it will cut to some, like, Kassili Yazabi stuff. But it's mostly, like, the Gundam and the Zeong fucking each other up. Um, and, like, and since this is the last episode, like, this starts a tradition in Gundam of, oh, it's the last episode? That means you can just destroy everything, and it's cool. Like, it's I because it. you don't... Yeah, nothing needs to be left over for another episode, so you could just fuck everything up. And so the Zeong and the Gundam just slowly falling to pieces. Um, especially, like, watching the Gundam just get blasted is so shocking. Of Like, its arm gets shot off, and then when its head gets taken out, like, that's when... And it's just this, like, headless, one-armed Gundam flying through space and getting into Abaoku. Like, it's such a, like... It leverages the advantages of, like, the mobile suits looking like people thing as much as possible. And especially the fact that we've held off on doing something like this for so long. The Gundam has, like, been damaged. But at most, it's usually like, oh, like, its leg will get fucked up a little bit. Or, like, half of its foot will get chopped off. It's never been this severe. 
And so, like, getting to this point and just seeing this completely mangled Gundam uh, is, like, it's always, it's a visual that is, is always very striking to me. Absolutely. Oh, man. I I love the sense of finality. Because there's kind of two big things going on in this episode, which is that everyone is converging at Abaku and, like, getting onto the big meteor space base or whatever it is. And the white base basically crashes, wrecks... And they are they're doing hand to hand combat as as Bright tells everyone that they're they're kind of fighting for their lives at the white base. And then you have Shar and Amuro fighting and eventually getting into the space base as well and fucking up their mobile suits. So you've got the white base getting destroyed. You've got the Gundam getting destroyed. The Zeong we don't have necessarily an attachment to, but it, it's getting fucked up. Like they're leaving everything on the field. Like from very early, on, I feel like the Gundam losing its arm is the moment where you're like, this is a series finale, right? Because we're not Absolutely, we're not yeah. worrying about this anymore. We're just going to do it, and you're eventually to the point where Shar is just flying around in the Zeong's head and nothing else, and fucking up the Gundam. And then Amuro's running around in a Gundam without a head, and then eventually they're out of the suits entirely. It is so satisfying. Like that's something that I do think one way series finales sometimes do suffer is when they don't embrace the possibilities of finality enough. Of like, this is it. You're not doing any more story. Fuck it all up. Just do everything you want to do. That's when it gets really good. Yeah, and, and God, that moment when... Because it's the end of the mobile suit fight that Amr and Char has, which is Amr, like, popping up and just shooting the Zeong directly through where on every other mobile suit the cockpit has always been in the torso because that's where all the armor is. So Amro deals what, like, normally would have been a killing blow to a mobile suit, but he doesn't realize that the, the, the cockpit for the Zeong is actually in its head and the head detaches and fucking flies away, which is, again, another great just, like... I, I want to, like, cut back to the fucking, like, engineer that made the Zeong. is like, like, really, I didn't even want it to have a head. Uh, because, like, why would you even need a head? It's a dumb thing. Like, it doesn't need to look like a person. But if you are going to put a head, like, you should at least have it be able to fly around. I don't care if it looks goofy. kind of dumb. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a flying... It's your, like, fucking escape hatch, basically. Um, so, yeah. So, then it's just the flying Zeong head... Um, you get the, what is like a very iconic sequence um, that is that is visually quoted in a lot of Gundam shows, which is um, Amuro programs the Gundam. He knows that that Char is waiting, uh, like in that tube with the Zeon head, like this. to ambush him. So he programs the Gundam to walk forward on its own and then stand there and fire up. And like that shot of the Gundam with one arm and no head just firing directly up is like visually quoted all the time because it's a great shot. And then the Zeong just shoots straight down and destroys the Gundam um, almost completely. But Amara has used that chance to like get out and like kind of sneak up there. Like, and that's the end of the, all the the mobile suit fight between Shar and Amuro. And the first time I watched this episode, I was like, well, that's kind of disappointing that, like, the Char Amro, like, the big fight between the Gundam and the Zeong, like, is over, like, six or seven minutes into this episode. Little did I know that they only did that because they realized the coolest possible thing you could do to, like, conclude Char and Amro's rivalry in this show is to have them not fight in mobile suits, just have a straight-up fucking sword fight in space, or, like, in zero-G, and floating around and fucking trying to stab each other with, like, rapiers. When they cut to Sayla stumbling upon them in that room fucking fighting with swords, I, I'm pretty sure the first time I watched the show, I literally stood up and just, like, was like, this is the coolest thing ever. This is the best idea anyone has ever had at a TV show. Zero G fencing to complete that. I mean, man, yeah, it is. 
it's that's Gundam. I feel like that's like Gundam in one sentence is like uh-huh. all the possibilities put put together, and there's not even a robot in sight. It's so fucking good, and and also just what focus this episode has on Shar and Amuro. Like this is better than I ever anticipated the final Shar and Amuro fight being, both in how good the choreography is on both the mobile suit side of the fight, and then when they are just doing it mano a mano. You know, with swords and then with guns and then with fists at a certain point. But also, I think, putting in really sharp relief these two people fighting and that one th- some and, and giving an ending I didn't really expect, which is the focus of this ending for Shar and Amuro, for sort of our two leads at a certain point, is both of them realizing that they are distracting each other from their actual goals. And I love that being the ending because the ultimate ending past all the swords and fists and guns and everything is Amuro kind of lost sight of what is he fighting for? Is he just fighting to kill Shar? No fucking point in that. There's no, why? The, the Shar doesn't really matter at this point. Zeon is falling. It's like literally the world is ending around them. This doesn't matter. And Amuro reorienting himself and ultimately using his new type powers to lead all of his friends out of the base and realizing that's what he was fighting for. Beautiful. Beautiful, perfect, beautiful. Even more beautiful is Char realizing, like, whatever my grand machinations were, I got in this thing to fuck up the zombies. The world is ending around me. Kaisila's about to get away. Let me grab this bazooka and finish what I fucking started. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, everything in that whole sequence of events of... One, I just the the conversation that Amr and Shar have while there's fencing is so great in in Shar just being like, Do you do you know why I lured you in here? And Amr's like, Yeah, you think that um like just because I'm a new type means I won't be able to win this fight because I'd still have to train my body. And then Shar's like, Yes, like the, the, like and I will now kill you and Amr's like like well we'll have to we'll, let's test your theory and they clash and I love that the only reason why Char survives is because of his dumb fucking face mask. Because he has his dumb face mask on. Amuro, because Amuro stabs him through the visor and gets him. But if he had not had that face mask on, that sword would have gone right through his fucking skull. And one of the, the great things about um, the post-Mobile Suit Gundam stuff is that Char always has a little scar on his forehead... That reminds you he lost that fucking fight to Amro. Like Amro won. Like Amro got stabbed in the shoulder. Like Amro got wounded more, but he really won that fight. And I think that that's such a great. It's it's a it's a thing that Shar has to carry with him that I think is like important to his character in the future. And it's like a great visual reminder. And it's just the the payoff of his dumb fucking face mask is perfect. And then that also then means that. I love the visual of for the last section that we have for Char in Mobile Suit Gundam, he doesn't have the mask on and it's just him um, and it's just his face with his his blue eyes. So when he flies up, uh, it's just his normal face. It's like Kazval or whatever killing Cassilia. And Char also has the best fucking kiss offline for killing Z- for Cassilia Zabi, which is... Here's a present for you, Garma. I'm sure you'll get along with your sister in the next world. And then he fucking shoots that bazooka. It's it, There's a quick shot to a close-up of Cassilia and her eyes just going, what? And then fucking profile shot of Cassilia's head getting fucking cut off by the bazooka. And then the room exploding. It's the coolest thing anyone has ever done. It's so amazing. Because it's not just Shars kiss offline to Cassilia. That is Shuichi Ikeda's final line in the series. That's it. Yeah. Shar does not appear after that. That's 
it. That's the last we see of Char for now. And of course, when the show was made, they all might have thought that's the last we're ever going to see of Char, right? So like, yes, yeah. for all intents and purposes, talking present tense about the series, that's it for Char. Char exits stage right, which is the perfect moment to do it. Just that's it for Char. And man, I, re- I rewatched that Kaecilia gets shot scene about ten times last night. And like the just go frame by frame through the animation of the bazooka coming into the room, taking off the head. There's one guy in the front center of the frame who looks around like, what? And then there's an explosion, blows him out of the frame, and then a severed like leg or arm, some severed limb, flies through, and there's like bone and sinew and everything. And I assume the only way they got that on the air is that it's like a frame. It's not like visible for a full second or anything. It is amazing. Yeah, it's very violent and just like a great payoff to Char who, yeah, like part of his journey was like he clearly got so wrapped up in this like obsession with the Gundam and his rivalry with Amuro, especially after the Lala stuff happened. And I love that he's sort of realizing I have lost focus. Like like I need to deal with what is in front of me and finish the zombie family stuff. Um, because also the, there's a lot of conversation between him and Amuro about like what what is the role of like the new type and there's a sense of Char seems to have like like because because Char's like motivations past this point also like it get like like they change a lot and get complicated um and there's a sense of he's kind of maybe the scales have fallen from his eyes on new types or something of like he realizes how dangerous they are that it's not just like here's like the paradise of humanity that we will create where everyone understands each other it's also like no people are going to use new types as weapons and if Amro is one of those weapons Amro could kill everybody like Amro is fucking unstoppable so if I don't kill him here who knows what happens in the future and I like that like it's a thing that sort of like plants seeds for the future that are things that they do pick up in later shows, but it's a nice like Char has bigger ideas he's seeing on the horizon, but he has to let that shit go and just finish uh, finish the battle he started uh, with Garma. And again, I do like the poetry of in this final episode putting Amuro and Char together and then again in a way where Mobile Suit Gundam kind of constantly undercuts normal storytelling expectations and stereotypes in that the point of the ending of their confrontation is not these two people need to fight out to the death and we need to see who wins. It's both of them are distracting each other from their true purpose. And for Amuro, it's very true to his character that it is finally like cementing those connections he's been running from. And for... (laughs) For Char, it is putting a bazooka through the head of his enemy. It's They know their characters so well on this show. And mm-hmm. that is a wonderful thing. I do like in that sword fight, uh, you talk about Amuro getting stabbed through the arm. That is also just a great visual of him running around with the like piece of the of the sword just stuck in his shoulder and he has to pull it out and Amuro is is very much on his last legs by the end of this fight like any fight where our, where our two you know main characters get get properly fucked up that's what you want out of an ending and having the entire Gundam destroyed and then Amuro stabbed and wounded is it's all very good yeah and it's also in this sequence where i feel like it it kind of ultimately recontextualizes Char as not like a villain, but as like another hero that like you can very easily imagine a different version of Gundam where like that's told from Char's point of view where he is like the hero character because ultimately Char is the one who wins the war, which I think is a great detail. Like in this battle, 
Amuro doesn't really do much that helps the overall war effort. Like, he definitely takes enemies out, and he, he does, like, kind of help open a path to Abawaku. He's a tank, um, basically. Yeah, but he doesn't... He's not the one who deals the decisive blow. Like, he's he's not instrumental in, in finishing this fight. It's Char is the one who wins this war, and, and it feels right for the character, for a character like Char, who is someone who is normally more focused on the bigger picture, who has, like, big plans and schemes to be the one who's like, of course he's the one who's going to end the war. is the guy who's like, he's is like a gun. You point him in the direction, you fire him, and he'll take what, what's out um, in front of him. But he's not someone who's the guy who wins the war. He's not the one who, like, does, like, to, takes everything out. Um, he's, he's just one more soldier. He's, like, he's a very good soldier, but he's just another soldier is what he kind of feels like. And I think that that's the right way to use him in the finale. Yes. Because, yeah, Char is Char's not a villain and really never plays the, the villainous role. He is an antagonist, obviously, because Amuro is our protagonist and Char is often the big obstacle in his way. But that is what makes Char so interesting in, in being antagonistic but not quite a villain. At a certain point, it's almost like the way the lines get blurred in like uh, Death Note, for instance, between like Light mm-hmm. and L and, and what makes a protagonist an antagonist, but also hero and villain. Death Note does obviously the fascinating thing where the protagonist is the villain and the antagonist is the hero, which is the, the really interesting thing in that show. This one, it's, it's not obviously that clear, but you do have Char is like Char is, is a bad guy in a lot of different ways. <laughs> He's done a lot of bad things, but no, he is. In the grand scheme of, like, moralism in Gundam, the Zabi family are the villains, and he's trying to kill them, and he is not the one trying to, like, exterminate half of all humanity. So, it's, uh, it's why he's such a great character. He's so, you cannot pin Shard down, you know? Exactly. And there's yeah. so many possibilities. Like, that is honestly the thing that makes me so excited to see the next show and, and beyond that, is I want to see where they go with Shar because that character feels like he has a world of possibilities laid out before him. Yep. So. There's some there's some good stuff ahead that Char has for sure. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a little bit. But what else in in this episode in in that stretch? Because we also have all of Sayla's stuff in here, where she yeah. she gets through to Castfall a little bit. Yeah, I think because she also has a really good character resolution of yes, where she comes in on Amro in Char fighting because that's how you discover that they're sword fighting. Which is which is like the thing that makes it even better is you never see the moment that it becomes the sword fight. Like, that's just left to your imagination of how that transition happened. Because, like, the last time you saw them, they were chasing each other through the hallways of Abaoku. And then you follow Sela as she gets, like, a sense of what's going on with her new type stuff. And she stumbles upon them as she's, she's, she's trying to find them. But, yeah, so she's... Because she is the one that ultimately convinces Char to give up this fight against Amuro. Like, she's the one who comes in and says, like, no... Like, there's no reason for you to be fighting. Like, your goal is to, to defeat the zombies. Like, that's like this is what you need to prioritize. There's no reason why you and Amuro have to kill each other. And and I think it's a very satisfying way for her to, like... You know, she's obviously never going to have her big brother back the way she had when... Like, they are the relationship they had when they were a kid. But I like that it doesn't end on just, like... Where like you know Sayla in tears because Char ran off and like she's she has to give up on her brother. I like that she gets this moment that she finally gets through to him one last time and they're like final scenes together. There's no like big moment they have, but I feel like it's a nice sort of like coda on their characters and kind of wrapping up um, um, their relationship because it's one of the things that 
is disappointing about like the post mobile suit Gundam stuff is because of some like issues with scheduling for the voice actress. Sayla is never as important a character in Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta as she would have been. Um, so she only has small cameos. So she and Shard never have a scene together in any of the shows past this scene. Oh, so it's that's kind sad. of the last. Yeah, it's the last this last moment they have together. Um, obviously, like it's they're the voice actress for Sayla is different in the origin stuff. Obviously they have some prequel stuff in origin, but in terms of like the timeline of Gundam, this is the last moment they see each other. Uh, and watching it after you've seen everything else and coming back to it, it's nice that they get like what feels like solid resolution for those two characters because it doesn't, again, for reasons that like, or were unplanned for it never kind of happened in the other shows. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And then we do have the final scene. I love Amuro going down to the broken, busted-ass Gundam, and he launches part of it away, and he's just... We're down to, like, he's just got basically the core fighter left. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that... This is as much as I love everything else in this episode. I think what ties it together for me as an all-timer great ending is how they bring Amuro home. And then mm-hmm. ultimately he uses the new type of powers to guide everyone out of the fight. We watch the white base go up in smoke. Everyone is out there on like the, the space equivalent of life rafts, you know, out in space. And then Amuro comes out, Kika, Cats, and Let's. Uh, the payoff to them being the ones who get him out of that base. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then Amuro comes home and he has that internal monologue about like, like this is what I was fighting for, um, uh, Lulu. Lulu. Lala. I don't know why I called her Lulu. Lala. Anyway, I'm doing bad with character names today. And uh and, and coming to tears as as he comes like home to his family on the, this you know, constructed family on the white base, which is what we were watching for forty three episodes, was this group of strangers and amateurs become a crew together. And uh just it's a it's a perfect ending and I think, you know, it's not overly sentimental to me. I feel like it is completely earned and it is the right way to like bring this to a close. It's it again. It feels like whatever the different plans were, and I don't know what they were. This feels like this was the ending that it had to have. So that's interesting because this sequence is what was always planned. Like they had always planned that Amro would like how Amro gets there and what happens with Shar and Giran. All that stuff is different, but Amro psychically helping everyone get off the white base, the white base being destroyed and then Amuro coming in at the last second and and actually surviving. Like that is what was the planned ending all along because, because it is the perfect ending. Like it is, you know, it's, it's something where um, I'm glad, like I'm really glad that mobile suit Gundam doesn't have like a, in like half the crew die kind of ending. Cause there are lots of Gundam shows that have really fucked up dark endings where like, you know, the final battle, it takes a much bigger toll than this one but there's something right to me about no like like these characters should live like like these like Amuro Amuro's story is still one that can be like kind of bittersweet and tragic in the way that Gundam needs these kinds of stories to have those elements to them and still have everybody survive and I think that's one of like the tricks the ending plays is that there's still something to me that like kind of hangs about like Amuro's connections to these people and like Amuro's relationship to the world is like fundamentally different by the time you get to the end of Gundam and his place in the world as like the only like new type ask new type like him and Lala were the only two ones we saw that were like everyone else has like new type stuff they were on like a totally different 
level. And so it's like him, he has like suffered traumas and his relationships to people like Fraubo are like, in, like completely different in a way that is sort of bittersweet. And you can imagine that, you know, Amro's life from here on out is not just necessarily going to be like roses and unicorns, right? It's not a perfect life for him. So there's still that hanging over it that gives it like that kind of Gundam weight. But if, but everyone still needs to live like everyone, like in that moment, they are a family and they are together and they're like all rooting for each other and all on everyone's side. And I think that is the way that this show needed to end. You, you have to have a feeling that we fought for something, you know, because this isn't a nihilistic show. It's just not, it's, it's a show where things mean things and you have to have something for him to come home to. And it is like, there is bittersweet elements about it. Like Amaro's lost, Everything, including, again, I think like a stable, normal human future. He's been fucked up in all sorts of ways. But for him to have these people he's fought alongside and they can all fly away from the battle together, you need that. And it is really powerful. I really love bringing all this, the psychic connection in and him connecting with all the different characters. I talked about this earlier. And again, I think the payoff of it being Kika, Katz, and Let's who guide him out, mm-hmm. like... That's why you have those characters there through 43 episodes. However convoluted you have to make it, like, that is such a perfect payoff to those kind of, you know, for more or less comic relief characters to have that payoff. Perfect. Just just perfect. Yeah. And it, and it gives, it's a really good way to give every character a, a little moment in the last episode. Yeah. Because obviously, like, these two episodes focus really heavily on Amuro, Char... Um, and Sela, as like Sela has quite a bit of stuff, but there's not a lot of stuff for like Bright and Kai and Hayato and Fraubo and Mirai to do. They have moments, but they're not like the episode can't be focused on them. So having this last sort of like montage where Amro gets to talk to everybody and help them out of some problem. Um, and I also love that you never hear what Amro is telling them. So it's it's always like you cut to Fraubo pinned down by like gunfire and she just says like Amro. Amaro, is that you? And then, like, I okay, I guess I have to run after the next, like, after the the shooting stops. And then she grabs the kids, and everybody gets a little moment like that. And I think it's a nice way to just kind of wrap up every single character. Because, like, one of the most impressive things about Gundam is even though plenty of the characters, like Hayato, um, have not had, like, a huge amount of focus, like, he and Fraubo never had, like, the Hayato or Fraubo episodes. You care and love all of these characters mm-hmm. by the time you get to this this ending, and you like need to have this moment to kind of see them all off um, in this nice montage. Absolutely. So, I guess that's Mobile Suit Gundam. Is there anything else to say about these episodes before we move on to some other things here? Gundam's fucking good, man. Like I, you know, again, I watched these episodes like four or five months ago, and watching it all again like this is just like nope. Like I. I I don't know if there is another TV show I could have watched again all the way through in such quick succession. Um, and, you know, like, just thinking about all the shit that, ha- like, like, that happens in Escape, episode 43, like, that's 22 minutes of television. I know, it's wild. It's, it's ridiculous. I, it still feels like the people who made this show had, like, mad time magic or some shit because, like, there are many like 
hour-long episodes of other TV shows that don't handle, like, half of the amount of plot that Gundam does in that one episode. Um, and Gundam still has time for little fun moments with, like, the kids and stuff like that in episode 43. It's, it's like, there's some fucking black magic shit going on in when they made Mobile Suit Gundam. There absolutely is. It's lightning in a bottle. Like, how long was the Game of Thrones finale? 90 minutes? Uh-huh. Not as much happens in those 90 minutes as happens in 22 minutes here. It's fucking ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So I want to ask. So you were going to tell us about what the original plan was because you have some info on that for us. Yeah. So um, you can find this stuff pretty easily if you Google around. There was a book that was released in Japan um, that has like a lot of sort of like production information on the original show, and in that are some of the notes that Tomino and the staff made for what their original plan was obviously like a lot of that stuff probably would have changed like if the when the scripts in production like actually went under for those episodes but again uh it was originally going to be 52 episodes uh it was not super successful on first airing so they cut it down to 39 but then tomino and the staff uh sort of like made a deal or whatever to to get the episodes all the way up to 43 so that they could write a proper ending for the show uh, but the notes for those 52 episodes still exist, and you can you can find translations online. So the, basically, uh, there's a couple of major differences. One is, as I said, Lala is has a much smaller impact overall on Amuro. Like she still is used to drive Amuro and Char against each other, but like there's not the same sense of her because one Amuro doesn't kill her she's she's accidentally killed in a fight with Amuro but it's done by another character that doesn't exist uh in the version we have um so so her death is traumatic and Char blames Amuro but it's not like this is the thing that changes Amuro's life uh instead of that you have a whole host of other new type characters that are affiliated with Shalia Bull so Shalia Bull still dies basically in one episode but he had a bunch of other people from Jupiter that came back with him that are also new types so they would have had a series of other new type characters that would come in and would be kind of like your here's like a character that's going to fight Amor for this episode and Amor's going to defeat him and that would have been like the time they would have explored more of like the new type stuff in more detail so that's one element that would have been very different. And then the other, like another major thing is they basically cut out what would have been a whole kind of section. Like if you thought about like think about how we kind of structured this podcast, what would have more or less been a section of this podcast, which is there was a whole phase of the war, which was them fighting Cassilia on the moon, because that's where her base is, is Granada on the moon. And so after taking Solomon, they would have gone to the moon and that's where Cassilia would have died. So Cassilia would not have made it all the way to the final battle. She would have been killed there. I don't remember how she dies. I don't think Shar kills her though. Um, and so then after that, you have you go to Abaoku, and the Abaoku stuff, as you might imagine, would have been completely different because Cassilia is not even there, and she's so. Uh, Girin still, I think, kills Degwin. Girin actually destroys even more of the Federation army because he fires the solar ray twice. Um, so he destroys most of the, the Federation army with the solar ray. Uh, Amuro and Char still fight, but then they team up because Amuro has a realization that the true enemy of the war is not like the random Xeon soldiers he's fighting. The true enemy is Girin Zabi. So Amuro goes to, to he gets to Abaku, he goes to confront Girin. Um, I think he kind of gets pseudo captured, and he and Girin have some kind of like conversation. Um, and then ultimately, I'm pretty sure Amuro kills Girin. 
escapes and then like after you know killing Girion is how then the ending is more or less the same of he's injured he escapes he goes back and 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 also I don't think Shar kills destroys the Gundam I'm pretty sure it's another um different mobile suit that kind of comes in that's a different character that destroys the Gundam and I kind of forget how Shar wraps up I think it was something like Shar I, I think it's kind of some of the same stuff. If Char goes against Amuro because he's mad at Amuro and he has kind of forgotten his Zabi thing, and then Amuro and say like convince him to help them fight Giren. Um But yeah, that's like in the broad strokes where it would have gone is more new type stuff with Charlie Bull's people fighting Cassilia on the moon and killing her there, and Amuro confronting Giren directly instead of all that stuff kind of being off on the side. And I think that like. Probably the execution of all that stuff would have been very good because everything they've executed on was very good. But I think ultimately for me, the version we got, like them having to wrap things up without having to have things be as neat as it would have been. Because like the ending as it was planned sounds a lot more conventional than what we got. I think like them having to kind of push all these elements together and figure out what to do with them basically in, in five episodes... Um, gave us an ending that to me personally seems a lot more satisfying and like creates more interesting like thematic statements than having like Amuro actually face down with Girin or anything like that. Yeah, I that sounds much less satisfying what you laid out because for one, yeah. it sounds like Char doesn't quite have a place if he doesn't have a zombie to kill at the end. You know, exactly. Like yeah. that feels like that has to be the punch. Because I said this, I, I was thinking that had to be his ending before we even got to these five episodes. Like I wanted that. That feels like that has to be his punctuation. And I don't know if I buy that Amuro would have that revelation and like go behind enemy lines to kill Girin. That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. Yeah, so I agree. And and obviously like the only, that only exists is like vague notes that right. they made that like I'm kind of like half remembering cuz I I read them like 2 days ago um again. But yeah, so I'm sure that like if they had made that it probably would have been fucking awesome because again like this team made like 43 episodes of great television um so i'm sure that the rest of them would have been good too but there's something so electric with what they did that feels like you know almost a miracle or something like it's i just it's hard to imagine any because i can't think of any other show that had that something like that happen to it of i mean it's basically like a fifth of their episodes got taken away from them so like that's a big chunk of their 52 episodes like what would have been 52 episodes got ripped away from them and they had to come up with an ending like without a whole phase of the war like they had to come up with some way to resolve all the Cassilia stuff um which seems to be have been like one of the biggest things that kind of pieces that changed what they did with the ending but i think it it worked out really well i think so too because the other thing you say yeah. there that sounds like it would have gotten old to me is I th- I don't think this show needed another stretch of 10 episodes with another enemy on a base where Amro is yeah. facing another series of foes, which just sounds like what they would have done with Shalia Bull and the Moon stuff. I think after... And some of this is just the bias of I knew this was 43 episodes and I knew that it was going to end soon. It felt like after Solomon, the show needed to start heading towards home, like heading towards its its final destination. And I think if you had had everything leading up to Solomon and then another space base that they have to go fight before we start heading towards home, yeah, I think that would have been too much, I think. Yeah. One thing that is nice, though, is because there were lots of planned mobile suits that, like, Tomino, who did... Because Tomino did 
like do rough sketches of some of the ideas for what he kind of wanted some of the mobile suits to look like. So a lot of those uh, ended up getting like getting official designs uh, from the I forget his name, but like the guy who's like the art director and, and mech designer for Mobile Suit Gundam. So you can because I, I think some of them maybe have even been turned into models and stuff. So a lot of like the planned mobile suits that would have been stuff that like the Charlie Bull new type people would have been uh, piloting. Those designs still exist, and that's like. That's cool to me that they still managed to like sort of salvage some of that stuff um, um, and keep it around because because no other mobile suit show has as good designs as this one. Like no other mech show I've seen has as good designs as Mobile Suit Gundam. Like the Gundam and me- um, like mecha designs in this show are fucking top tier, amazing. Like so many all time classics came from this show. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So I think maybe we'll talk about this more next week, but I'm just so curious. Like, yeah. what's the future of Gundam from here? So, like, where... Just sticking to, like, Universal Century stuff. Uh, our our main characters, you know, Amuro, Bright, uh, Char, Sela, some of these. Like, where do they show up again? Where would you recommend a person like me who really likes it go next in terms of the TV series? Yeah, so so there's a couple things here. One, um, because I just remembered it. Another thing that's interesting to note... Um, I haven't read them, but I, I pretty should get around to it at some point. Tomino did also write and release a series of three novels in 1979 while Gundam was airing that are an alternate version of Gundam that's like a, a more adult version of Gundam. And just to sort of spoil that, because I, I read the synopsis forever ago, um, Amro dies at the end in that version. Um, he's killed like halfway through the Battle of Albaoku, and then Shard joins the White Base um, and helps them finish the war. So there's a there's a series of novels out there that if you want to see like a different version of the story, um, there are like there's an official English release of it as well. So people can seek that out because that's like or just like read up on it on the internet because it's very interesting thinking about this like very different version of the show from the guy who made the show. Um, so that's a thing you could do if you want to see other versions of Mobile Suit Gundam. Obviously, there's, there's the movies you can there's, read the book. There's also a twelve volume manga series that we do have out now that I was reading about. That was yes. done pretty recently, and it's with the the origin series that's airing in Japan right now. That's based on the OV, that whole thing. That is based on material from that manga, which fleshed out a bunch of backstories. It sounds pretty cool, and it it yes. adds it fills in a lot of the gaps. And I'd I'd kind of like to read that now. Yeah, because I have read. I kind of fell off of it at some point because I just had too much stuff going on. I read the first few volumes of the origin uh, manga. So yeah, so a couple of years, the, the more than like probably about ten years ago. In Japan, they there was the Mobile Suit the Gun Mobile Suit Gundam the Origin manga, which is a retelling of Mobile Suit Gundam with like really gorgeous art that is in the style of the show that has a lot of supplemental material. That supplemental material, which tells a lot of like the backstory of characters like Char and Sela, and there's some Amuro stuff in that as well. Those got turned into a series of what are effectively movies. Um, that are mostly focused on the Char stuff. And then that those movies are being recut into a series of episodes called Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, like Tales of the Red Comet or whatever it is. And that is on Crunchyroll. Like it's, the episodes are being released on Crunchyroll now. Um, and I will like... So I'll say so for... If you want to watch other Gundam stuff and you just finished Mobile Suit Gundam, I would say um, you could either do The Origin is awesome. Like people should watch The Origin. If you like Char... Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin is, like, required viewing. It's fucking amazing. 
Um, I haven't seen any of the TV versions, so I and I don't know if people like the way that those have been cut together or not. The movies are awesome, so so like those have official releases. Those are all those movies are fucking great. One thing that's like to know going into them is that there has been stuff over the course of Gundam that has like retconned bits and pieces of like what happens during Mobile Suit Gundam and like when certain like when the gun tank is made and stuff like that some of those details are have been changed a little bit so if you go into the origin just know that like there will be some pieces that don't quite fit up with what you know from watching the original tv show because some of those things have been moved around but other than that it's that's a great way to that's a great place to go um you could also watch mobile suit gundam war in the pocket which is a six episode ova miniseries that is amazing. Like, people should definitely see War in the Pocket, even if you haven't seen Gundam. Like, it's it's a totally standalone thing. It takes place near the end of the one-year war. It's kind of a side story. That's really good. And then there's also the 08th MS Team, which is another OVA miniseries also set during the one-year war. Another side, side story, um, sort of standalone story, um, that's kind of like Gundam meets, like, the Vietnam War. Um, and it's like a different, different Gundam team on earth fighting in like jungles and stuff like that. And that's very good. So if you want to see other kind of like one year war stuff, you can go to those places. If you want to see the continuation of these characters and what happens to them in the future, um, most of them appear in Zeta Gundam. Char and Amro are significant characters in Zeta Gundam. Um, and their stuff in that show is amazing. Um, Bright is also a significant character in that show. So Zeta Gundam is the direct sequel. I think it's about 50 episodes long. Um, and it's very good. I don't personally quite like it as much as the original show. It's stylistically pretty different in a lot of ways. Even though it's it's a lot of the same creative team like Tomino. Um, but it's a great show. If you want to see what happens to these characters in the future. I think it's like basically the best possible version of of a sequel to the show you could get and that it's it's focused mostly on its own set of characters like Camille who's the new protagonist but the way that Char and Amuro fit into that and their relationship with Camille is really fascinating and it's it's a thing that like when I think about the sequel trilogy of Star Wars movies I think a lot about Zeta Gundam and how I think Zeta Gundam has handled Hand, handle back then some of the ch- similar challenges that the sequel movie had in terms of mixing new characters with like iconic old characters and Zeta Gundam does it like better than anything I think I could think of so if you want to see more with these characters Zeta Gundam is the next place to go and then there's there's double Zeta Gundam and Char's counterattack the movie right yes and that yeah, so that's the, and and that's basically the conclusion of this phase of Gundam okay. like that's like there's no, like, real Char Amro stuff set past that because, like, everything after Char's counterattack is, like, so far in the timeline that all the characters you know from now would be dead, whether they would die in a war, whether they die by old age, right? Yeah, because so, I know Char's um, counterattack is the definitive end for, like, Char and, and Amro. Who's in Double Zeta Gundam? I haven't figured that out. Um, so, so Char is not really in Double Zeta Gundam, mostly because he's in the movie and so when they were making the show double zeta they were going to use char for a specific role then they found out that they kind of got greenlit on the movie so they moved char for the movie and then put a different character in the role of double zeta um which works out better because that character is awesome in double zeta um and and so bright is in double zeta also he's he's the captain for all three of those shows basically Um, oh that's cool i didn't know that yeah he and his role in those shows is interesting because of how he goes from like you know, he's kind of like, I'm getting too old for this shit by the time you get to Double Zeta, and it's very good. 
And then, yeah, and then you get, like, small cameos of, like, Fraubo pops up in Zeta Gundam. Um, Hayato actually gets a pretty significant role in Zeta Gundam in Double Zeta, like, more than you would think. Um, Kai shows up. Mirai shows up. Sayla has a small cameo in Zeta, and she has a slightly bigger role. She's in a couple of episodes of Double Zeta, but not a lot. Um... And I think that's about it of, because because basically everybody shows up somewhere. Right. And then Kika, Katz, and Let's. Um, Katz in particular becomes a pretty big character in Zeta Gundam, but all of them show up in Zeta as well. Okay. So, cool. So, overall, if you want to follow these characters, it's the three anime, the movie, but if you want to see more from the the one-year war, there's those side stories and things. And, yeah. And do you, yeah. If do you, you like this setting and this conflict, there's more stuff that fleshes it out that's very good. Nice. And, and do you feel like you have to watch them in a certain order or can you just if i just wanted to watch the origin tomorrow would that be fine you could totally watch the origin tomorrow like like obviously the, it's only if you're going if you're pushing the timeline forward then you need to take it in order obviously but all the side stuff you can watch like you could watch war in the pocket right now like again i think people who haven't even seen gundam could enjoy the war in the pocket show or 08 ms team like they're very standalone origin obviously requires you to have seen the show because it's a prequel that hooks into yeah. a lot of that stuff. Because, like, I know some um, there are some media franchises where you want to watch things in production order, and this is obviously all produced in a different order, but it sounds like that's not the case here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fun to watch it in production order, but if you did that, it would you'd, it would be, like, three years before you could get the origin if you're watch, watching them at a pretty fast pace. Yes. So, yeah, like, it's in no way a necessity. I think it can be—that's how I watched all that stuff, and I think it's a fun way to do it. But that's only if you're like want to jump. If you know for sure you want to jump in all the way on the deep end, that's on you. Um, but there's nothing. There's nothing in the origin that like is going to be hampered by the fact that you didn't watch like Unicorn Gundam or something like that. Wait, there's a show called Unicorn Gundam. You, we we already did this bit in the first episode when I mentioned Unicorn Gundam because Unicorn okay. Gundam. That's that's another um, Universal Century show that's sort of a similar thing as The Origin, that it's like a series of basically movies. That's very good, but you should only watch that after you've watched Shars Counterattack. Okay. Well, anyway, we're getting off track here. We'll probably do a little more of this next time, but, but next time we are talking about the movie trilogy that saved Gundam, basically, right? Yeah. It, I mean, it was the toy sales in these movies that kind of like... Yeah, that that those like the movies were hugely popular, um, and then the show itself became popular after that, and like reruns in Japan. So it's like, so it's not something where because I feel like this story gets told by Western fans of like, oh, like, and I think this is a story that kind of backs up the oh, you should just watch the movies narrative that is horseshit. You should watch the show because the show's so good. Um, but the show itself also became hugely popular in Japan. The things from the show are referenced in Japan as well. But yes, the movies which are recut compilations of the show with some new footage, um, some tweaks here and there with like new type stuff, some of the Federation stuff. The third movie has, has quite a bit of new footage in it, but it's fundamentally the same plot told in a, in, a, in a different sort of structure. So I'm excited to watch them because I've never watched them properly. I've only seen like watched the like sections of them um, that were new. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it, and then we'll use that to kind of wrap up our discussion of Mobile Suit Gundam as a whole. Next week on the final episode for now of Weekly Suit Gundam. Will we be able to survive? Survive.